welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the sites and podcasts of the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their legendary classics, breakout hits, flavors of love, and hidden gems that could be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections can come up when you take a look at a director's entire body of work. Come and join us on the film journey. And it's quite an epic journey that we're going to be starting out in this episode as we at the Directors Club are trying to do something we are terming the Bergman 101. Every single feature-length film that has achieved a theatrical release from Mr. Ingmar Bergman. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And helping us provide some great assistance to dive in to such a Sisyphean undertaking, we are joined once again by our fellow member of the Chicago Film Discussion Group and uh, a regular um, visitor out to the denizens of the Directors Club, as heard from uh, the John Ford and Terrence Malick, among others. Uh, welcome back, Peter Richards. Howdy, Pete. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. And uh, I like the idea of diving into the darkness of Ingmar Bergman, much like one of the characters we'll talk about later has an ill-fated dive into darkness. You guys listening in may have, when you ever hear about the name Ingmar Bergman, you think a couple things immediately come to mind. Uh, first off, legendary director who put in these films about people in close-up talking about the misery of their pitiless existence. We may actually get into some of those as we go through these films, but one of the things I have to say is that I was so pleasantly surprised by so many of the different films and themes and things that Ingmar Bergman was doing in what is going to be part one of our three-part series, looking at his early career. At no point today will anybody be playing chess with death. A lot of the most iconic of the Bergman films are going to be saved for parts two and three. But I think that makes this part really interesting because we're delving into films that are less known. And basically what we're doing is discovering the origin of Ingmar Bergman because he doesn't start out doing the types of films that art house critics and audiences have embraced and have become legendary. He starts out with melodramas, comedies, even a noir, just trying to find his voice and work within the Swedish studio system. If, if you were going to tell me before we engaged on these films that there would be moments where I'd be in like white knuckle suspense and moments where I, we would just literally almost bust out our guts laughing at what we were seeing. I would not have expected it, but uh, there was some phenomenal laugh out loud moments. And I, I hope over the course of this podcast, you guys will be able to impart to you guys just the, all the scope of what Bergman was doing in this early period. And we'll start to uh, put together the puzzle pieces 
of what makes an Ingmar Bergman film, we're going to see almost right away that he has a pretty constant stable of actors who he comes back to again and again. We're going to look at uh, some themes that repeat throughout even these early films and then develop as we get further on. Mm -hmm. And we'll also go be talking about how even from his earliest films, he already has such a proficiency upon how he would be able to present a scene. But unlike other amazing directors that we've talked about at Directors Podcast, like Akira Kurosawa or Orson Welles, he's using the techniques to go explore these different films. And so there, one thing that I got out of it is that there's a huge amount of playfulness and creative experimentation to just try and uh, move the camera, use different expressions of lighting and... Almost as many wipes in some films as a Kurosawa <laughs> <laughs> uh, a film might have. And, and, and for those people who uh, really enjoy films from, say, Wes or Paul Thomas Anderson, who appreciate that kind of directorial intent, that you see that the director is guiding you to look at this area or view a scene in a certain way, you are going to find a lot to like with every one of these early films of Bergman. Ingmar Bergman's first film is not the beginning of his career. He started out as a screenwriter and worked in theater, and throughout his career, he's going to be alternating between film and theater. Of course, we'll, we'll only be talking about the film part of it, but we should keep that in mind. And he's, of course, the most important uh, director in the Swedish film world but he didn't start out that way in fact the very first film project he was involved in was a movie called uh, torment which he didn't direct but wrote and was assistant director on torment does kind of seem like oh he's starting on a particular idea <laughs> <laughs> a very light note but but honestly that that's something that i love about bergman is that i think maybe more more so than any other director, you feel these films and you feel the depth that comes, an authentic, authentic depth of feeling that comes from him. Even in these early films where quite often they're in the form of a melodrama or they may be dabbling in other genres. As we dig into these, I think we'll see that his pet themes and just the depth of feeling comes through in these films. And that sort of authorial stamp is really, in these days, hard to find. And that's why I think you mentioned two other auteurs, Al, who have very distinctive uh, visions. Mm -hmm. And th that was one of the um, kind of treats of going through all his films and seeing that develop, especially in these early films where it's not fully formed, but you can see the seeds planted for um, a lot of the stuff we'll dig into later. And the first seed to be planted is Crisis from 1946. Young Nellie was raised in an idyllic small town 
under the care of her now-ill foster mother. At the age of 18, she is faced with a life-altering choice when her birth mother from the big city returns, offering Nellie a new kind of life, full of temptations personified by her mother's sleazy young lover, who also has his sights on Nellie. Now, this is really an amazing film to take a look at if you know Bergman from his uh, more well-known efforts, because there it is something I was so breathtaking by, how there are so many elements that informed his later work, but you get a budding sense of those in Crisis. One thing that, that immediately leaps out is this tremendous sense of empathy towards all the characters in their situations. Even though, like, the basic structure on Crisis is a kind of more, is a sort of big city versus small town living, but the people in the big city are not treated as one-dimensional ogres. And at points, Bergman gives these characters a moment to express themselves and, and deliver where they're coming from. And one of the things we're going to see a lot of in Bergman is that empathy is going to be particular towards women characters. Ingmar Bergman is one of the few classic directors to really consistently have a female point of view. And we have that right away here by looking at the story of two different mothers and their daughter and how uh, each one of them views the world around them in their own way. Because you mentioned kind of the small town city thing, and that's probably the major theme of Crisis. It's very similar in that way to F.W. Murnau's Sunrise. Oh, yeah. In its contrast yeah. between the small town life, which clearly Bergman does prefer, even though he gives us city people with agency and with, with souls. Mm -hmm. He's not neutral here. He's, I think he's definitely saying that the city is a corrupting influence. The mother who's uh, from the city, the birth, the birth mother, she's kind of a harder edge character. I think we sympathize more with the foster mother mm -hmm. and we're supposed to understand that maybe, um, this character has been damaged from, from her time in the city. While he does show more of a preference for the small town, he does show that the foster mother uh, is, uh, is quite harsh and brittle in her own way. Uh, she's excessively demanding at times. It also points out that the denizens of the small town have no money. So people are always borrowing <laughs> to get money for, uh, resources from something else. And she actually borrows... She borrows money from some people just to pay off the debt she has to a person who's in the same room. <laughs> so there are ways in which like her character is found a little a little wanting. And by contrast, the by contrast, the birth mother has achieved a sort of success, but the success is in running a beauty salon in town. And Bergman depicts what happens in uh, the beauty salon incredibly nicely visually because Part of the way of her success was she had to build up a facade, a sort of a, a physical almost way of protecting herself from what the city had to offer. 
and this is depicted nicely visually on the shots of mannequins or shots where like a character is in one side and then a mannequin is like reflected in a mirror like already we're getting a thoughtfulness of like different perspectives in this film considering the facades of this film are, are an interesting way to look at the early Bergman films in a way because really what's at the core of this really overwrought and melodramatic film is loneliness. It's about the birth mother's loneliness and being uh, the fear of being left behind, like essentially like an empty nester of sorts. And what's so interesting about this film is that it is, as you guys stated, very uh, empathetic to that character. But the other, the flip side of that is it, it takes that trained eye and we also get, I think what is the first of many Bergman stand-ins in the character of Jack which is almost a portrait in self-loathing where he, he can see the things that make other people struggle. But when he turns on that lens on himself, it's almost like he can only see the horrible, the weakness, the insecurity, the sort of um, what you might call roguish charm on a good day and and crippling insecurity on another day. It's really something that um, despite the structure imposed on him here, you get the sense that he's digging into these themes from the beginning and also mining his own life for those feelings. Jack is played by Stig Olin, who is going to be the first of many actors who is going to appear again and again in these films. I viewed him as a little less of a director stand-in and kind of more of a corrupting influence for Nelly. Uh, he, there are scenes when, uh, he, he basically brings her into, uh, the party element of the city. And it's a little, a little hysterical about the dangers of these wild young people. I have to say that was one of my favorite, like, oh my God, because I never, one thing that comes to mind when, when I was thinking of Ingmar Bergman was fan of hot jazz music. (laughs) And yet... There is, is a hot jazz number scene where these these like that could almost come out of the Blues Brothers at the restaurant where they um uh, where some pompous party is having an opera and then and then all the youngsters decide oh the heck with this and they're gonna go to the next room where they just pick up like improvised instruments and then just start putting in like this incredibly festive and 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 vibrant dance to the increasing consternation of the uh, town elders. <laughs> But maybe also to the consternation of the filmmakers, because I think they're kind of viewed as delinquents rather than uh, yeah. the people we're supposed to be identifying with. <laughs> Who would have thought that he invented Footloose? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I get I see that a little bit differently. I, I think it's more on the kid's side. I, I think like at least it acknowledges the attraction of breaking out of the box of a small town. I, I think it may kind of balance those a bit, and it's certainly not a road to utopia to get out of the small town. It, the plot clearly doesn't allow that, but it does. I, I think it acknowledges the release they're seeking anyway. Yeah, definitely. And and I beg to differ with you, Peter, a little bit about the about the character played by Stig. Uh, Stig has a very particular sensibility. It looks to me he's like fifty um, percent uh, looking like Harpo Marx, thirty five percent like Chico Marx, and 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 an unfortunate five percent from Donnie Most. <laughs> there, there might be a Stig mustache rule 
Oh, yeah? uh, in that I, I th- Stig is often playing the uh, sleazy Lothario, mm. but that's when he has a mustache. When he does not have a mustache, we're supposed to like him, and he's more of an audience-identifying <laughs> I- character. Yeah. But it's interesting how he goes on his own journey to complete self-destruction. And I think one of the shortcomings of the film is it doesn't really bring us on on this journey. We have some pretty broad dramatics that get him uh-huh. to this point, but we are focused on other characters. So when he does become suicidal and really self-loathing, it's a bit of a sharp turn. Well, and, and, yes. I, and I feel like that to me is like, the interesting part of this film because it's not the first time we're going to deal with self-loathing and suicide in these films and i think that's really one of bergman's um obsessions or just maybe a reflection of his own life i think he had to overcome issues of that sort i agree brad i think that this film doesn't allow for suicide or depression or isolation or whatever you want to call it to be really delved into in a personal way but Given what we'll see later, I think it's interesting that he has those themes here, even when they maybe don't fit as well. But the journey we'll be going on is him learning to make the films, uh, the, the films around those themes more successful rather than kind of clandestinely sneaking those themes into films of this sort. Right, so I think we have two things at the very beginning of Bergman's career in that even though the themes will be better incorporated into film story as we go on the willingness to go for these big ideas and these themes is there from the beginning also the movie looks great and i i I think that we're all going to have varying opinions on the movies we talk about but for me one thing that's just constant is Bergman and whoever he ends up working with as as a cinematographer are always on point with creative framing with the visual element. The visual element just never fails. In, in yes. two two standout scenes here for me on that front. One was the party se- party slash dance sequence you guys were talking about earlier, and then there's a very noirish end of uh, sequence at the end of the film set in the beauty parlor which is just beautifully done and it will kind of foreshadow a a noir film we talk about later. But those two, um, irrespective of how limited the story may be, there's certainly a lot of visual um, eye candy here you can enjoy. Exactly, yeah. That that moment has one of the incredibly potent images where it was, there was a, there was a romantic tryst that happens in the beauty parlor and it's showing sort of the aftermath of it, which just has a lady who is uh, cover- who is partly covered by a blanket, and she's off in a far corner, and on the right, far right, is a mannequin head that's been st- that has stared in and, 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 and seen what's happened, and then another character is right behind that very manne- mannequin, but also in the center, there is this beautiful, like, light soft light diffusing from a windowsill which have the curtains softly blowing it's so evocatively particular of just capturing this this sad moment of realization on here and it's a pure pleasure for the eyes for me because you look on and the whole, I look over the whole composition and it all fits and flows together so wonderfully as does peter to your point the dance sequence of because 
at that moment, Bergman's very frequently like panning back and forth to show the frenetic dancing on the right side, then panning back to go through the, the staid opera from the elders on, on the left. And there is also an element that will appear in more Bergman's, which is key to, I think, the particular kind of self-loathing that the Stig character has. Uh, the character played by uh, Stig has in this movie. Because his self-loathing is that he puts out all these external gestures to just try and embrace life and go and grab as much of life as, as he can. But he finds he doesn't find a feeling of meaning and purpose. And he's also a failed actor at the, it's, uh, the profession he's trying to get into. And so... This leads to an idea of performance as an element. What does it mean to, to try and make a performance and, and what can be expressed? And also how successful or unsuccessful you can be about that. To your point, Peter, about how that is a standard for Bergman, that's really interesting because what does that say about him? But also, what does it say about him that that's his first movie is kind of questioning. It, it does not to compare this movie to Citizen Kane in its quality, but it, in its subject of what makes a success of a person from a very young uh, director's first effort, that's a kind of a remarkable thing to see from, from Bergman's uh, first film. And from there, he goes on quite a bit of a detour in his next film, It Rains on Our Love, released in 1946. Meeting on a stormy night at a train station, pregnant Maggie and ex-con David decide to pursue a future together. They face many obstacles and prejudices, especially when they seek shelter at a ramshackle cottage with an unscrupulous owner. Yet an angelic old man with an umbrella seems to be watching over them as he narrates their story. Here we have the first example of kind of a commercial consideration because Crisis was a troubled production and in fact Bergman didn't even get to finish the film. Uh, classic Swedish director Victor Seastrom had to step in uh, at the very end. So at this stage in his career Bergman's got to keep commercial considerations front and center and what he did was made a movie that's Capra-esque, very evocative to huh. me, of the films of Frank Capra. He has the elements that we've become familiar with in films like uh, Meet John Doe, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, in that you have an idealistic young couple, and they are faced with a world that's unfair, a world that is conspiring against them. And 
just when you think there's just no chance for this couple at all, you're going to find maybe that there's some justice, some way to turn all this around. And, and I'll, I'll, mm. gi- I'll give this to Bergman. He does have one advantage over Capra in that he gets there in about 85 minutes, where it usually takes <laughs> Capra uh, closer <laughs> to, like, what, two and a half? Not, not, a, not a Capra super fan, I take it? I, I don't mind him. I don't like this film. This film is a goddamn mess. But <laughs> the Capra, I'm, I'm okay with. But this is, like, this was very frustrating. It just sort of kind of dully ambles on, has some interesting albeit misguided acting choices in it but it really feels like i I think you're right on brad it it feels like something that maybe a young director um is asked to do and maybe he explores something he's interested in it maybe that capper touches something he's interested in this early Uh in his career but it, it doesn't fit him it doesn't suit his sensibility and really not much of anything works here. I, I liked it a little more than that, but I, I do agree that it was a weird movie. And the weirdness pretty much announces itself with uh, its narrator, the man with the umbrella, this, uh, I guess, kindly old man who's uh, going to be rooting for the couple. And basically, as the movie goes on, it becomes clear that he's being presented as an angelic figure, although also a character in the film. And also a character who addresses us in the audience. This is another thing I really, really enjoy about these Bergman films that I saw, is every single one of these intros is interesting and captivating and has a purpose to it. It's not just done with the title card and just gives a nice calligraphic font of the name of the movie. This movie starts in On a Rainstorm and there's a whole section of umbrellas. And one of the umbrellas moves back to reveal the figure talking to us, saying, oh, here's a story uh, I, w- I want to tell you guys about this couple, but what's going to happen next? And then he moves the umbrella to obscure, and Bergman, in, in a brilliant move, fades in with, from the umbrella to, this, to the first scene where we, our characters are introduced. I, I would say the effect of this is hokey, but not unpleasant. This was something I was not expecting from Bergman. This is a second movie, and he's experimenting. He's trying to go to what we, what I brought up earlier about Crisis, is that he's like, what's the value of performance? Here he's taking the step back. Breaking the fourth wall in your second movie is fairly remarkable, I think. And to Peter's point about Capra, I am not a fan of a lot of Capra. Frank Capra is accused of being overtly hokey and sentimental, and in fact... That sentiment has been dubbed Capricorn. Well, one thing that I love about this film is it's actually Capra Cohen. <laughs> you have the Capra sentiment, but it's filmed with these Cohen brothers esque strange touches, real oddball characters, situations that whiplash from one <laughs> from one tone to another, and just a collection of very very strange behaviors. For one, the couple is like uh, find themselves lost at the rain, and they jump out of the way of a train that somehow caught them by surprise. <laughs> and uh, when the, the train passes, they see that this mangy dog has been following them, and, and one character points and says, Look, that dog, I think the dog wants to be with us or wants to join us. And it cuts to the dog, and the dog's hopping on its hind legs <laughs> like it's on a vaudeville show from Ed Sullivan. And I'll be honest with you guys, 
my brain didn't register. <laughs> I was like, I just felt, wait, we, I had to pause and go, okay, I saw something, but what was it? <laughs> but that is nothing compared to when the couple find their way into this small cottage and they start looking for some food. Yes. They have a really interesting discussion because they've basically just broken into this place and they're having some moral issues with that. Is it right? Is it wrong? But it's raining outside. We kind of understand they're hungry, they're cold. And then they start debating about whether to get food out of the cupboard. And they, frankly, they're debating this a little bit too long. They finally decide, we're going to go into the cupboard. What do they find in the cupboard? What do they find? Just about the strangest looking stuffed cat <laughs> you have ever seen in your life. Just sitting there in the cupboard where it should not be, where David Lynch might have put it. But what it's doing in this movie, I don't know. And then our lead, played by Berger Baumston, just grabs the cat <laughs> and just starts holding it like it was just meant to be there. And <laughs> so he's so staring at holding this ridiculous stuffed posed animal in the perfect center of the screen. And I have to admit, I share in his befuddled amazement <laughs> as to what he's encountered. <laughs> should also mention that uh, our friend Berger will appear again and again uh, as we move on with these films. Yeah, mm -hmm. This is the first segment in our, our in our installment of Our Boy Burger. Where yeah. does he? Yes. When will he show up? So. And and to Peter, to your point on the Capra connection, in this movie and in some others, he plays a kind of Capra everyman aspect. But basically, imagine the most negative slant on the word everyman in that it's a very generic performance that has none of the star power that Jimmy Stewart would give to similar kinds of roles. Well, I mean, there's not a whole hell of a lot anyone could do with this, really. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like a Hallmark kind of sentiment. I don't know. Like, I, it, He's not great, but what could anyone do to salvage this, really? I mean, it's just so... I mean, he's an ex-con. It's just... It, it doesn't come across at all. It's... Well, no, there's a lot of, well, what you just described is something which a lot, which are, which a uh, captivating actor could have, like, done, could have done quite, quite well. Like, just to give a quick tangential one, there's a, uh, like, a da the David Gordon film Joe has even less, a lot less incident that happens in there, and yet the main performance there just can, can really draw you in. That's something that Berger is not quite able to do here. And it becomes all the more lacking when, when you see how the story ultimately takes shape, it's a Wonderful Life, which has a good Clarence and an evil Clarence. They encounter someone who ostensibly claims to own the cottage, but uh, he may have more sinister things in mind and does some decisions to give a sense that he's trying to lead this couple down a bad path. And he's very much contrasted with the angelic character because he's pretty much a satanic character played by a similar-looking old man. Mm -hmm. One old man is friendly, the other is grumpy, and one will have their back, the other is going after them. And mm -hmm. we kind of get a scene at the end where 
we realize, oh, they're representing some kind of uh, heavenly hell battle going on. Yes, and I guess one of the bigger fa- that leads to one of the bigger failings on the film is that this shape of it is almost like the biblical story of Job, where like these two people made a wager as to whether to test these people. But unfortunately, instead of Job, Berger and his um, love interest are these two kind of oblivious idiots. So many of the things that happen good, uh, g- uh, bad in the movie to them as a result of just them being stupid, <laughs> such as like not filling in on the rent for their cottage or going out and not reading what the forms are for getting, for getting married. And in a charming moment, a moment that I was like, that got me to laugh yet again, the devilish character uh, says, oh, how do you, how do you like the cottage? And, and Berger says, fine, no, we're not going to go live there. And he's, and the devilish character says, okay, fine, I'll just take it over. Mm-hmm. Now, now you have no house. But that's uh-huh. actually a really uh, common trait for a, a Capra hero is to be naive. Yes, and I think he crosses the border into from naive to being just a rather dullard who isn't aware of what's going on. It's not really Berger who's the main problem. To me, the two worst performances were the, we'll call him Angel and Satan character to me. Mm. Uh, um, I don't think really either performance works all that well, partially because of the writing on the, the darker character side. I mean, he seems to have these very... Uh, low energy schemes <laughs> like satan is just having a slow weekend i guess like i, I yeah, don't know yeah. it's it's like the the two most laziest like biblical opposition for for sure and, and then the angel character kind of is mainly just sort of a sideline narrator for much of the film until he gets his big moment in the courtroom scene at the end <laughs> right <laughs> yes which was my which was my like i maybe my biggest laugh of a moment of all it was a courtroom scene and the Capra influence is so strong in this one. If you know about trial movies and your spine starts to stiffen or tingle and go, oh no, we're not talking about a big speech that goes exonerates everyone and tells about the real right way to live, are we? <sighs> Unfortunately, we get that, but my god-awful disappointment about it was absolutely immolated by the fact that the guy giving the speech takes his glasses and takes it off his head, then he puts it back on his head sideways. So it's sort of at the top of his head at a diagonal. And he continues the entire speech like this. I think we need to clarify even further what you mean by (laughs) sideways. This is not sideways on both eyes. No. This is sideways with the top of the head and the chin, <laughs> the, 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 the special effects that kept these glasses on this guy's face yeah. must have been state of the art at the yeah. time. Yes. At, at no point during the speech are the lens of the glasses anywhere near his eyes. They are hanging off his ear at roughly a 45 degree angle. Now, why this actor made that choice, I have no oh, fucking idea. Oh, I don't idea. think that's an actor it's, choice. No, I, 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 it has to be. No, I, a, I, yeah. I, don't th- I think it's Bergman's. And the reason why, the reason why I think that is because I'm laughing my head off at this, by the way. And especially by the end where he's really demonstrative. 
the actor is clearly shaking his head in a manner like to see as if to literally try to get these glasses to fall off his head. Well, I, I will say this. This short discussion we've just had about investigating who is responsible for the great glasses idea is more interesting than this whole scene in the courtroom. So just to give you an idea of it rains on our love and our, the quality we're talking about. Well, well, yeah, because it's because that's just a case where the that's just a case where the sentiment is ladled on. And Capra, to his credit, often modulates the sentiment to uh, like a bigger degree of control. And there is not a lot of control on the sentiment here. There's a, not a lot of control on the tone here. It moves from like it moves from one tone to another in ways that are thrilling, but also in ways that make absolutely no sense. Right, Bergman will get his comedy feet wet as he goes on, but he's definitely not there yet. There are comic elements, but they they are pretty ragtag. One thing that is here, though, which will portend well for future films is the Bergman debut of one of his greatest actors here in a smaller role, uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand, who plays kind of a fussy, tight-assed uh, tax collector yeah. who's uh, going to come in and harass the main couple about uh, what they owe on the house. It's interesting that the, this this fellow who, as we go on, will give monumental performances, starts out as just this weaselly type of character. Totally. Yeah. And, and it really goes to show you what a difference it makes between the actor's presence on a film screen. Because he, I don't think he's doing anything special. He's playing a like little bureaucratic, pips, annoying pipsqueak. And yet, he steals the movie out from under our two leads there because he just has such personality and vibrancy in his two minutes on screen than they have had for the like the half hour before i guess for me to sum up if you want to take a look at bergman exploring both this idea on the capra-esque sentiment and also the kind of combination of wackiness that have been found on the cohen's work like especially in tones of stuff like the big lebowski and especially in some of the the temptations of fate that have befallen them in a, a serious man and if you just want to see some crazy stuff you would have never expected in a Bergman, or for that matter, many other movies, this is a movie to see. I find it a, just a, a gem to experience, and it was a real pleasure for me. Despite the fact that, not to your point, Peter, it's not really that good. Yeah, not, <laughs> not seconded. Okay. I just, I, I object. I'm in the courtroom <laughs> objecting. Bergman's next film will be more in his traditional early melodramatic style, A Ship to India, released in 1947. When Johannes, returning home after years at sea, receives a chilly welcome from an old flame, who happens to be his father's showgirl mistress, he recalls the trauma of his abusive father. We also follow the father's own journey from authoritarian boat captain to a shell of his former self, 
going blind and with contempt for his own son. It starts off with Armand Berger uh, returning to the town from where he uh, grew up. Events that happen cause him to go on a walk down a beach where he passes out on the beach and the waves evoke that he has a flashback. And 25 minutes into this flashback, which obviously this was a framing device, uh, Brad, you pointed out, wait a minute, we're dealing with characters that he has not seen and are in a room he's nowhere nearby. <laughs> How is he having these flashbacks? And they, they continue on with these all these different places. It's like, if Bergman ever got into like George Lucas territory with remastering them, he would have to CGI draw like uh, this Berger peeking out of a corner that he actually did witness this stuff. Bergman loves his framing devices. If it's not some uh, off-screen character telling us that we're about to witness uh, an amusing story or a mm -hmm. sad story, then it's these flashbacks, which happen so often in these early films. And I think at this point, Bergman is just kind of giving up on the idea that the flashbacks have to be strictly sensical. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is how we're going to get into the story Sorry, we're, if it, yeah. we're not going to be too precious about it. It makes me wonder, because maybe the only way you could make films in those days to like jump back and forth in time was to say, oh, this is the guy remembering, so, so that audiences would be guided to know that this is something that's happening in the past. Well, and I think, too, what he's really after here is like a feeling, right? Like It's not so much where we get, but how we get there. And I think what's interest, most interesting here is we're, we have another melodrama, uh, the theme that emerges here that I think uh, bears fruit later is the theme of an abusive, domineering father. That, that'll that come up again, and I think that mirrors Bergman's own life and his own experience with a, um, I believe his father was a minister yes. and a very strict person. And really the key thing here, to me at least, the key performance is the actor playing that father, who is uh, um, probably messing up this name, but I believe it's Holger Lohenedler. If he were active today, he'd be one of those kind of character actors who would show up and he'd be like, oh, that guy's evil. And he's a really frightening presence. And this movie doesn't have a whole lot else going for it other than like you really feel um, that threat from, from the father character. Other than that, we're sort of back in melodrama land again. Right, because I think Berger is asked to do more than he's prepared for with this character because he's really a complicated character in how much he's suffering from low self-esteem and the abuse he suffered at the hands of his father. So in the, the present day, when he returns from sea, he appears to be somebody without any disability. But it's explained in the flashback that he's a hunchback. And we see he's got a, a physical hunch which uh, the father mocks him for, and he feels very self-conscious about. But the fact that it kind of disappears with no explanation, aside from that, I guess, he, he grew confidence, mm -hmm. is just a very strange and distracting touch to it's, this film. It's also strange because I didn't even notice that it was a hump. Until people kept pointing out, oh, look at the horrible deformity of it. And I felt like he could respond to how Igor from Young Frankenstein. What hump? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it really is just like, honestly, it looked like he just took some padding in his sweater. And he just, just straightened the thing out. 
But it doesn't help that it is like the world's first psychosomatic, metaphorically spiritual <laughs> deformity, uh, maybe? I mean, <laughs> but unfortunately, this is kind of one of the most notable thing about, like, this character. Berger's not that equipped to deal with that nuanced, the nuanced person of, of that have the depths of self-loathing and then the complicated feelings of what happens when in the interactions with his father's mistress. Uh, when it requires him to rage, he's properly angry, but And then when he is uh, meeting up with a mistress, he is a perfectly happy-go-lucky person happy to be frolicking around by a windmill. Well, it, I, I think part of the problem, too, is that it's pitched too high. Um, and while I appreciate that Bergman wants to get at the depths of those feelings, like the melodramatic structure here just doesn't allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, here's another thing. Here's the thing that I found really, really interesting when I saw the film is... It's a film that has these melodramatic touches, but whereas, like, the stuff that we know from melodramas from 1940s films or, say, Douglas Sark films, is it's about repressed expressions and, and, and interactions between people that are being forbidden and just only dealt with incredibly obliquely. And I was really braced by how much things are happening on the surface because... There's a situation where the father invites his mistress onto the very boat where he's still living with his wife and his son, and his wife accepts it. This is an arrangement where the wife, unfortunately, has been all too familiar with this, and they've just reached this particular kind of accommodation. And what it does on a relationship level, it also does on a language level. I found that this was real. It was something striking how absolutely direct everyone is at expressing their deepest feelings towards each other. There's no like passive aggressive things about how he treats his son. It's like, I hate you. You're a horrible deformity. You're a total failure. I have no real heir. This is things that he's actually says. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then he tries to kill him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, Peter, you might be putting a lot of weight on that part. <laughs> to inspire that he has this evil presence. <laughs> because I actually, until that moment, I understood that he's basically this very, very big version of the guy who yells at his son at the Little League game because he was a failure at getting the baseball, and now he has his dreams. He has his dreams, and he can't accomplish those, but he's so aware that his offspring's not going to do that either right. right and that's only one of his issues because yes. he's also dealing with the loss of power he was such an authoritarian monster really that when he can no longer captain a boat and then now that he's going blind you're seeing what is going to be the first of many emasculations now it's yes. not really that dramatically effective in this case because we don't like this character. He's being played very broadly as, as a pretty nasty piece of work. But I, I do want to go back to the uh, attempted murder scene, though, because just on a technical level, I do think it's the best scene in the film. Mm. His son is uh, going down in an old-fashioned diving suit. And then we see that uh, the father has to pump manually pump the air to keep him alive underwater and there's a really strange sound that's accompanied uh with this pumping and 
we see him working the pump in in shadow, just his shadow. Yes. And then we hear the sound stop. And this is a pretty intense moment in an otherwise not very intense film. Mm-hmm. And it has the dramatics and the depth in his performance and his actions that Burgers just doesn't. Because there is a moment where he's holds his hand near the pump and you see hit going through his head what the implications of those actions are because he in a way kills off any prospect of his future by deciding to go and make this decision it's a very narcissistic way of saying he's killing himself well it, i just really feel like the actor really i feel like i've met that person unfortunately like mm. that mean bitter drunk who you just know has like these waves of hatred emanating off mm. him and you just know if you're too close to him you're going to end up hurt somehow and unfortunately for the burgers character he's uh, his son so he has to be around him and he has to deal with those things all the time yeah but i just to me like the highlight of the film is just that those waves of hatred i felt coming off the father character um and then the movie does melodramatic things with them um and Brad, I wholeheartedly agree that the visual presentation you described so well is really the best visual piece of the film. Calling it a ship to India is a little bit of a, a in-joke in that it's about the promise of a ship to India. The idea of going to a faraway land and in a way maybe the opposite of crisis and the idea, the lure of getting outside of your environment. So... That was something I found pretty interesting. Well, even believing that you belong outside the environment you've been put in. I mm -hmm. think I think both Berger's character and our uh, lead female character. Gertrude Fritt, I, uh, I believe is the pronunciation for, for Sally, the mistress. Who is, is his love interest at the end, really. are It's about their interior journey to being able to leave um, and allowing themselves that freedom. So there are things here that are worth checking out and are mm -hmm. interesting. Just not quite, uh, not quite the heights yet. Now, Berger Malmsten moves further in the ideas of masculinity and deformity into some true realms of darkness. In the next film of Bergman's, Music in Darkness, or Night is My Future, released in 1948. <laughs> An upper-class pianist named Bengt is blinded in a military shooting range accident. And as he attempts to adjust to life as a blind person, bitterness and pride cause him to reject the affectations of Ingrid, the daughter of his family's servants. As he rediscovers his love of music and deals with unscrupulous employers, Ingrid comes back into his life in a unique way. Since the time of this film, many films considered Oscar bait there are things you could put in your performance to almost guarantee you an Oscar nomination. And one of them is to portray a person with a disability. What I would like to report is that because it's an Igmar Bergman film, this is dealt with far more nuance and sophistication and insight. But mm -hmm. it is not true. <laughs> the, this is... Kind of like we were talking about It Rains on Our Love being a bit of Capricorn. 
Yeah. This is kind of Bergman going into a really standard weepy territory. Yeah, mm. it, it has one outstanding sequence. This movie starts off uh, hot and proceeds to cool down for the, for the remainder of its running time. But it does have a very interesting dream sequence early on. It's Bergman's early foray into this surreal kind of landscape, which works pretty well. And Bergman is going to become a master of these kind of dream sequences. Uh, unfortunately, he wakes up from the dream and we're in a completely different kind of movie. Absolutely. Peaks early and heads straight for the ditch. I don't want to go and say it's as bad as, let's say, there's not a character who says the words hoo-ha with umlauts over the O. <laughs> it's not that bad. But this is very surprising in the sense that it is a standard melodrama. It is. It does get a lot of the conventions of of a person trying to regain some sense of self-worth after a disability and also the people in his life that help him out or or oppose him and hit it's all not helped by Berger's presence where it's very stoic on times but then when it requires him to be angry he pops in a rage and then you just turn off on that it's Emotions that are that I felt were delivered more than something that I could evocatively feel. What it's trying to achieve, and it might have done better if we got to know Berger's character a little bit more before his injury. Yeah. Because he's supposed to be this very well-off and kind of snooty character who basically treats the people around him like dirt and i think maybe there's a, a class message trying to be conveyed and then when he has to now being blind deal with being in situations where he's treated badly where he's discriminated against and this creates basically uh, an awakening in his personality, a realization maybe through music, because one of the Bergman themes that is here is this music as a redemptive quality. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of seeing the movie that could have been. Basically, if we had a stronger lead actor, and it's just not coming together. And it also stumbles by popping, popping in stuff that may have been a relic from another famous director there because there are some John Ford <laughs> comic relief characters just just busting out through the door with these just incredibly broad histrionics that uh, sort of invade the movie and much like how Jimmy Stewart's uh, Wyatt Earp like ruined the Cheyenne Autumn's middle like these guys come in the middle of this movie is just really mostly annoying and and we have Swedish ridiculous. Mickey and we have Swedish Mickey Rooney. Yes. And the original Mickey Rooney is insufferable enough. <laughs> uh, let alone having this uh, literally snot nose as in there's snot under his nose kid being this foil to Burgers trying to work as a as a pianist. Again, it's it's supposed to be comic relief, but 
you're just dealing with some off-putting stuff now. Oh my god, talk about off-putting. Clearly the special effects have not understood what snot-nosed kids means, because this deposit is all over his face. I've never seen a cold sore around in a guy's entire mouth before <laughs> until I've seen this movie. You're so right. Mickey Rooney at his most twitchiest, antsiest, look at me, I will soil myself for you to point the camera my way type behavior is all evident by this, this guy. His stuff is mercifully brief, but... It's more intolerable than some of the than some of the existentialist things that Bergman's <laughs> done for me. It's like, how can I believe in a world where this isn't it? <laughs> Look, I totally agree with you guys. You can skip this movie. It's not worth checking out. There's not really a whole lot to recommend here. Aside from that interesting dream sequence we talked about, don't turn out the lights. <laughs> <laughs> so Bergman yet again shifts styles in Port of Call released in 1948. We first meet Barrett as she attempts suicide by jumping off a shipyard dock. She's rescued, and one of the observers is Gosta, who will later enter into a relationship with her, not knowing her complicated and guilt-ridden past. This is a film which m takes the idea of a young girl's struggles and her trying to find her way in the world that, that Bergman touched on in Crisis, and brings it to about as as dark as you could possibly go in this film. Her life, her choices, her possibilities are left so bereft that her initial suicide attempt becomes almost like a natural response towards the world that she finds herself in. And it happens at the very beginning of the film, and it's really a striking way to start the film because as she's approaching uh, the edge of this uh, shipyard deck and just falls casually off, it's a pretty shocking moment. Yes. One thing that's interesting about Port of Call is its visuals are a little different than what's preceded it because Bergman has uh, said that he was particularly influenced by uh, Roberto Rossellini and the neo-realistic style. Mm. And you, you, you can see this. There's a little bit of a calming down of some of the more melodramatic elements of earlier films, and you're doing a lot more observing of characters. True, but the things that you're observing, especially with regards to... Uh, her mother is, is the, that is one of the worst depictions of most negative depictions of motherhood that was not directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Hmm. This lady is an absolute poison towards the towards the family. Her every gesture is set to like take chunks out of the soul of both her husband and her daughter, and it's 
and that feeling, Peter, that you had about the father in, in Ship to India, here in this ship-based one, it's, it's the mother that I feel really delivers on that sense of toxicity. Yeah, we absolutely have that here. And as an early film, as a kind of genre-hopping exercise, because neorealism isn't going to be something that defines Bergman films much from here on out. There's some interesting visual touches here, but the story, again, is just too much, and really, there's not much to dig into. One place it does go is the idea of what a, a girls' reformatory institution would be like, which is a, a pretty ugly uh, setting as depicted in the film. And we deal with uh, another taboo topic, uh, abortion, which will come up in further Bergman films. I think this also might be a good time to mention about the different standards of quote-unquote decency that Bergman is dealing with in Swedish film versus what was happening in American film at the same time, where the Hayes Code very strictly censored what kind of content you could have, levels of sexuality, of violence, of things that, that are disturbing, uh, were very limited in American films. But you do not have these limits in Swedish films. So in Port of Call, you have a scene of brief nudity, which for a film made in 1948 is not something uh, one usually expects to see. The abortion thing is all the more startling when you consider that American films have started to address it in the late 2000s. Right. Like, even in the film Knocked Up, they couldn't actually say the A word. And so to see, to see it being addressed in such a frank manner is really interesting to watch. It might be a little melodramatic touch that it's a friend of our main female characters who has to go through this procedure, because it could have very well been her in that particular position. To the, your point, Brad, about the neorealistic side... It gets to the negative connotations that I have with neorealism, which I find can very easily translate to miserabilism. Mm. Sort of, look at these poor people, look at the horrible suffering that they have to encounter. And I kind of think that this sort of does have that, because her position is so one-sided, and everything from the society to the family is so against her and her any chance of happiness that Bergman's almost using like the film as an excuse to dole out a sort of sense of imposing guilt upon people about this situation, which also is part of what Gorka, the main male character, kind of goes through. You make a good point, and a lot of characters will suffer throughout many Bergman films, mm -hmm. but I do wonder if the spare style of the neorealism removes focus on other things mm -hmm. that very well might be a possibility on, on, on this one well and i think to harken back to our the prior episode that i was on the farhadi episode these bergman films kind of forced me to look at my relationship to melodrama a lot because i think it really is a trap that bergman could fall into to be miserableist to because he has what can, i think can be fairly described as a nihilistic point of view at times i think it's going to be interesting here to see how well he balances that. Does it become like grandstanding nihilism? Right. How big does he go and why does he go there? 
really in these early films, he's not in command of his gift enough to be grandstanding, if that makes any sense. It's, yes. it's really just starting to, un- to unpack his themes and sneak them in. And here he's looking for another way, the, uh, the neorealistic way you guys mentioned, to express that. Uh, again, it doesn't fit him real well, but it, it's interesting to see where he takes these themes now that he has tried something and found that it doesn't really work for him. As he moves forward in his career, he's going to be going deep into these existential themes and the meaning of life and the existence of God and, and all these very important ideas that in at the height of his career, I would say Bergman addresses better than just about any other director. But at this stage in his career, he's not yet prepared to do that. So you kind of have this melodramatic, or in this case, neorealistic structure on things. And then these bigger ideas will be thrown in as bits of dialogue, almost as a tease to what's to come. What's really neat here is there's a difference between the studio shoots and location shoots. Interiors are well composed and he's very interested in faces, whereas locations, he has a very active, curious camera that's a lot of panning and tracking, but doesn't feel ostentatious to me. Yes. Um, And that's one thing I felt, and it'd be interesting to track going forward is, does this ever get real showy? Because I didn't feel it was here. Um, just really found a nice balance. I think you were so on point with the idea of the curious camera. That empathy that we were talking about that was apparent from his first movie, it seems that it guides his camera choices. Like, whereas a conventional movie would have a two-shot of people having a conversation, here the camera's zooming in slowly on one person to get their point of view, and then pulling back to like look at the other people appreciating it. And then we're, we're moving towards this, another figure. And it's it seems to me that the camera's constantly getting itself to the right position to try to get the maximum impression of what the characters are going through. And here, I, I think I'm kind of in agreement with you guys that by putting it through this neorealist lens, it doesn't quite work. But he definitely tries to go experiment in his next film, Prison, also known as The Devil's Wanton, released in 1949. Die, A film director's mentor proposes an intriguing suggestion. How would a film portray a world that was, for all practical purposes, hell and is a place where the devil reigns? The film itself goes on to tell that story with the director and his cohorts as characters, but focusing in on the tragic life of a young prostitute, used by her pimp, forced to give up her baby, but hoping for one last chance at redemption. Prison is fascinating because it's as if Bergman is figuring out how to be Bergman. There's so many hints of what's to come 
in the next decade and the next phase of his career, but he's not ready yet. Prison has a lot of allegory going on. There's no actual prison. It's this idea of hell on earth, and the way he depicts this is through a dream sequence even more intense than the one in Music and Darkness, and just a upping the ante on abstractness. Does it come together to become the Bergman that that, that changes everything? I, I, I don't think it does. He doesn't really have a steady hand with this stuff, but it's fascinating to see kind of this dress rehearsal of what's to come. Totally. The, the film to me comes across that it's like he was excavating and he discovers this absolutely wondrous like weapon or tool and he but he doesn't have the instruction manual. <laughs> he has these things and they are and the elements themselves are great, but he doesn't quite know how to put it to complete use or to have it consistently work. The way that this film takes the themes that he was talking about with the idea of what can you properly express in performance and makes it an explicit way of moving through many levels. There's an amazing scene where they're on the film set about two characters on a boat trying to have their own romantic melodrama story and the camera slowly zooms in so the, ca- the crew disappear, the rest of the sets disappear. And you, as an audience member, are then transported into the world of these just these two people on a boat trying to tell their story. And as they're saying their story, the camera then slowly bands back again. It's a way of guiding us into these themes in a way that's felt as much as explained. And what's really interesting here is he uses the movie set, as you mentioned, Brad, there's a lot of allegory here. And one of the allegories is the, the character arc as a person's uh, life in i.e. that your life is a me- is ultimately meaningless you're predestined to death it's so dark but at the same time it's so deeply felt i don't think this is just gloom for gloom's sake i think this is coming from somewhere within him um, and i agree he's not quite in command of it yet but this is his sixth film uh, to this point it's the highlight of his career to me like this is the best of the early films just because it feels like the most air quotes real bergman film The framing device is fascinating because what we think is going to happen is this uh, math professor who's got this idea about a film about hell on earth. We, We imagine that we're perhaps going to move into his story as he's telling it with completely different characters, but we don't do that. Instead, we follow the film people who he's been talking to and some of their various relationships in the same world as the man who's proposing the film idea. So very subtly, we see his idea come to life, but in a way that doesn't take us into uh, another realm. So when we meet our main character, the uh, this very unfortunate prostitute, it's through the filmmakers. 
and it's also looks at what do they want out of what do they want out of her versus what their relatives want out of her and making a kind of comparison between how this person is being used and abused and it takes the elements that kind of seem a little overbearing to me in what Port of Call was exploring with its main female character, but it's explicitly commenting on those by saying, well, what does it mean to go and try to go get more involved with, with this woman's story? And her story is not just presented in a matter-of-fact woe is me, but is abstracted in all sorts of interesting ways. Like, to your point, the, just the amazing dream sequences of people standing around like trees and not not reacting to her and her having to pass through this fog-based world. And we enter this sequence through this spinning toy clown that uh, is just floating. And so it almost feels like some of the surrealism being used in uh, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Oh, yeah. And she talks about the dream before we actually see the dream, which is an interesting mm -hmm. decision because we basically have a visual representation of yes. something that was described earlier. It just it leads me to like make a comparison with um, David Lynch's uh, amazing film Mulholland Drive, which also has a scene where people relate a horrible dream and then you see a visual upon it. But it's also part of the subject about how people have these dreams and how the dreams are just broken apart. And 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 I also agree with you, Peter, that what is getting broken is pushes past the idea of like that it's just a miserable life to go and start asking these really big questions. That is what Bergman's been more known for. What is the purpose and meaning of life? And, and can there be moments of of grace or beauty that people can value in this world or is it all uh, like bereft of meaning and and this is something where it starts infusing on the cinema cinematography level too just so many moments where she's enveloped in darkness but there are these just like shafts of light that go and give like these potential ideas of of respite it gives these these fragments of things that like would make life worth living. In it's not just an exercise in in doom and gloom. One of the areas that that idea of respite is shown is that we mentioned the movie making or filmmaking allegory at the beginning of the film. Anyone who's been listening to this show as I've been on, no, I'm not a big fan of the wacky John Ford interludes that sometimes taint his films. This film actually does, despite all the darkness we've been talking about, this is a film that features suicide, abuse, prostitution, and a murdered child. There's a weird slapstick interlude in the middle of this where the characters via watching and what's made up to look like an old kind of vaudeville slapstick comedy film get that moment of rest, that moment of escape. And I really like that as much as filmmaking here is, is and the movie arc is meant to describe a meaningless fate for you that here it does allow you at least like this moment of laughter amidst all the gloom that mm -hmm. slapstick scene you're referring to is something that clearly meant something to bergman because he uses it again in persona and it's also cool that the slapstick is is wacky and funny and silly but it's about a guy facing death <laughs> and the mm -hmm. devil <laughs> as well it's also a great moment of connection between between a writer character and our main female character. And what, what does that mean that they can bond over looking at this, the idea of like looking at dark events, but in a real comedic way? 
the comedy is very limited to to that one sequence yes. because uh, th- this movie gets dark even by Bergman standards. We're definitely dealing with some heavy material with the uh, the hell analogy, and there does seem to be just a slightest connection between the math professor who introduces this concept and uh, the devil character in It Rains on Our Love. Yeah, for for sure. But it's handled a lot more deftly here because I was with you in that I thought, okay, this is going to be his story and we're going to, it's clearly going to be what his conception is. And let me go tell you a story. It's akin to like my, my, my favorite like eye roll in Singing in the Rain where Gene Kelly pitches someone to say, I, he just takes a producer and says, I have this great idea. And then you see this 15 minute incredibly abstract dance sequence that no one else would have had except mm-hmm. that Gene Kelly had the reins of <laughs> singing in the rain and he could get it made and then it cuts back to the producer going now nah. <laughs> but but right. here it's like he, he is so deftly made he makes a reappearance at the end which is so great because it both makes natural sense but it also has him emerge from the darkness a proto version of a certain character of death from a future Bergman yeah. There is, I think, a flaw in all this that keeps it from reaching the greatness which it's striving for. That is that the film is very heavy-handed with its themes and spells them out step by step. It, it, It doesn't trust the viewer to gather this. So we're really being hit over the head with what Bergman is trying to say here, and I, I think that is kind of undoes a lot of the really strong advances being made. Yeah, it's almost as direct and ostensible statement as what Port of Call was doing, but I find it's the both the filmmaking and just how deep Bergman's willing to go to look at like these universal things and look in terms of how these situations are refracted through performance that gives this that takes it to like two or three levels higher than that or than that earlier film as a touch of what can come from Bergman it is a great introduction if you if you were a fan of the Bergman films people are most familiar with on Persona Seven Seal and so on this is a great origin point of saying oh this is where this stuff is bear is bearing out for the first time yeah, it's a big step forward to what he'll ultimately be from what we've seen before. It's not done all that gracefully, but it has a lot to offer, and it's a real highlight so far. So we'll see if we step further forward or backwards with Thirst, released in short stories by Bridget Tengroth, Thirst centers around an insecure former dancer and her tumultuous marriage. She has many regrets stemming from a former love affair that ended her dancing career. 
We also follow the husband's former lover through her dysfunctional romantic entanglements. Now, this is, to me, this is a case of co- the ideas of confinement and restriction that have happened externally to the characters in a uh, port of call, but they're all internal. <laughs> so much of it, especially from our main female character, she is one gigantic psychological screw-up. Near schizophrenic in how she pushes the people in her life away and then grasps at them desperately at like the next moment and and constantly is flitting around from one topic to another from one neurosis or one paranoid concern to another and she's yeah she's a mess and so is this film in a lot of ways i would say this is a step sideways because i think it trades story for a growth and technical skill and he's really pushing himself um, in, term, in terms of the structure of the film, it's really, um, we, we talked a bit about his penchant for flashbacks earlier, but this is a bit reminiscent of Wild Strawberries, I felt hmm. almost like, which is absolutely a better film, but in terms of its flashback structure and what it's trying to get at, but it just feels a bit clumsy to me. We're back on the neorealist tip here, and it doesn't work real well when you have this personal desperation set against scenes of war-torn cities one inherently is not equal to the other, and this film doesn't quite grasp that. Yeah, the visuals keep moving forward, especially scenes with the the husband and wife on the train, and that train setting is very evocative. But it's a story that Bergman doesn't seem that invested in. It's not a story that he wrote. And because he's going to be trying to put these multiple narratives based on separate short stories from the same author into one story, it seems like a bit of uh, melodrama's greatest hits. Mm, so yeah. if prison is a look forward for Bergman, this seems to be a, a, a look backward on the various iterations of unhappy marriages, bad husbands, unfortunate lovers, just things that keep popping up again and again. This is one of my least favorite, possibly the least favorite of the films that I saw for this podcast because I found it singularly exhausting from the main character. It is, to me, was like watching John Cassavetes's Women on the Edge of a Nervous Breakdown and someone pressed the fast-forward button. There is one particular incident that is singularly horrific that happens to her and absolutely justifies a lot of her neuroses. It is horrible. And it really puts it into context that while she has, while you can argue that her character has every right to feel that way, it's a little different to have 90 minutes of us seeing her act this way. And I find really hard to be engaged by having her try to be happy or have a moment of happiness like I did with some of the other characters in these films because I don't think she could ever be I don't think she could ever be happy because there's just too many things in her own head that are stopping her in that way well yeah I agree this film isn't engaging it's inessential but it's an interesting visual step and I, and I like Brad your take on it. it it is sort of a remix if you will of what we've seen before it's a dash of neorealism a dash of the surreal art cinema in prison it doesn't quite come together some interesting pieces, but ultimately, um, 
you can spend uh, 90 minutes much better. And the final message I found was like particularly re repellent. The ending sentiment of it was two characters who have done pretty much 90% of arguing and and especially I really feel for our man Berger who is the uh, male half of this relationship. He does not get like a moment's sleep out of mm -hmm. having to deal with this person. And the ending moments have them say, okay, we have all this strife and all this anger and arguments and tension, but what are we going to do? Be alone? <laughs> I find that horrific both in just the sentiment of it and also how reductive it is. It takes some of that feelings that he put, that he was exploring so robustly in prison and puts it on a level of like, not even a Hallmark greeting card, but maybe a business-sized Hallmark greeting card. With bone lettering. Yeah, <laughs> oh, perfect lettering for it, to be sure. We'll see if Bergman can take things in a different emotional direction with his film To Joy, released in 1950. Features a character named Stig who looks back upon the relationship with his wife Marta upon learning of her death. They had met as musicians at an acclaimed orchestra under the guidance of a renowned conductor who takes them under his wing. Stig has dreams of being a soloist, which along with other temptations puts a strain on the once happy couple who is now a family with children. Maybe the most interesting aspect of this film is it features in, in a prominent role Victor Seastrom who will go on to dominate one of Bergman's best films, Wild Strawberries. And he has a really interesting history because he's probably the singular most important director in Sweden prior to Ingmar Bergman and was a great mentor to Bergman, which he plays a mentor in this film. Mm. Uh, Seastrom's own filmography is fascinating from the late teens where he did this wonderful seafaring uh, silent film called A Man There Was to versions of The Scarlet Letter another great film called The Phantom Carriage and mm. even uh, an American film starring Lon Chaney He Who Gets Slapped so it can't really be an accident that we're dealing with a film here about a struggling artist, an artist who feels he has greatness within him, but maybe the rest of the world doesn't recognize that greatness, this might be one of Bergman's most autobiographical films. It, it, this was the damnedest film to me because I agree with all that, but 
for whatever reason, the depth of feeling didn't come through here. Even though it had these personal touches, it felt like a standard issue melodrama in a lot of ways. We have a person losing a spouse. We have the artist with the mentor, all these things. But especially in the two most recent films we talked about where I felt Bergman's authenticity breaking through, here, oddly, it feels submerged to me. Like, I really can't get the depth from this film that I got from the other things, uh, from his other films. And it's really surprising to me because all the elements are there, but they just don't gel here really. I don't know if it's a matter of performance or direction or I really couldn't put my finger on it other than to say I was a bit disappointed. Well, I think you put your finger on it by calling it, it's the damnedest thing (laughs) because this film asks a particular question. I think of people watching it. How about spending 90 minutes with a very complicated, rich, nuanced portrayal of a guy who's basically a horrible asshole? It is a three-dimensional portrait of self-loathing, whereas earlier characters were hated themselves in one particular direction. There's multiple reasons for why this guy, he feels such a sense of inadequacy about how to deal with his wife how to deal with his children, how to deal with his mentor, how to deal with his career. And in addition, he has both a level where he thinks he has greatness in him, but also I feel there's more of a sense that he feels that he's entitled to glory, that he's entitled to fame, and that that there's some way that the world owes him. And so he has a really, really obnoxious, snotty attitude towards his fellow members of the orchestra and even his mentor. I had brought up earlier about like how in many of these films, these characters have very little problem with expressly stating how they feel. (laughs) And there's actually a moment where he's telling his mentor, well, okay, I guess I'll have to join the orchestra because I guess the world needs second-rate hacks to go into just play play the music in the background. You're like... Well, fuck you too, buddy. Yeah. Oh my god. And that unfortunately that was a feeling that I had for every moment about him. He was it is robust, but it is robust of a person that I find personally so so repellent. So that at a moment where his wife calls him out on his cheating and he responds by beating her bloody, I was felt that I had take someone had taken not just salt but taken the whole shaker and jammed it into a wound for me. Well, I, I this might sound like an odd thing to say, but I wish I hated this movie as much as you do. Or I wish I hated this character as much as you do because I just didn't get that connection to this at all. Like I, mm. I, I wish yeah. I wish I did. I, I felt removed from this film. Mm. Yeah, he's singularly unpleasant, and I think the film recognizes him as that because. Not only, I mean, the the beating scene is is the worst. I mean, you you can't sympathize with somebody after that. But there's a really tough to watch scene where he insists on becoming a soloist. He's yeah. basically a well regarded violinist in the orchestra, but uh, he feels he should be the solo star. And when he does a performance, it goes just excruciatingly badly. Yeah. And also to his character, he's when he, he it does go so badly, but then the aftermath is nearly as awful because he, he rails against everyone else right. for his own inadequacy. It's a way where I found that's yeah, that's truthful to the character, 
But, oh, God, what an awful character. Mm -hmm. But it's also something from deep within Bergman, Mm. because he's still not an independently uh, successful filmmaker. He's still going film to film, hoping that each of them will make some money, and some do and some don't. Perhaps the, the insecurity of somebody who knew he had kind of prison already in him but people weren't recognizing that. People weren't ready for that. This could be looked at as kind of like a, just a burst of anger. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting point because it raises the question for me. And, and I wonder, maybe you guys have an opinion upon, do you feel that like when he made Prison that he thought, oh my God, I made this amazing discovery? Or do you think that he was still exploring? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure of that myself. Well, I think it was exploring, but I think he had hit on something. I think that because he'd go back to it, because prison isn't a one-off and done thing. Mm-hmm. Prison would end up being a template for things that would be five, six years in the future. The proof is in the output, this film's mm-hmm. output from, from thence point forward, yes. Yeah, and I, I think that the pattern you guys are talking about will repeat itself with the film we're going to talk about later and that film's failure and the subsequent direction he goes from there. But with regard to this specific film, I agree, like, you'll see, like, everything you guys are talking about, like, the deeply felt self-loathing that Birmingham has done in other films, and it just feels much more authentic elsewhere than it does here. I think you guys are also onto something when you're talking about how Bergman was still struggling and still his chances of being able to make more films was still unknown. So in a way that he was evaluating, because both this and Thirst end on a similar message, because there's a point where his wife, who was in the orchestra at first, and notably the only female in the orchestra, but then there's a mo- a very telling moment when they're playing a, a piece and she cannot cape up. Mm-hmm. So she, very soon after, she quits. And she has a speech later where she says, I guess it's my life to just care about the small things and to get my life out of the smaller things in life. And the ending of this also seems to hearken the idea of settling. The idea that you should know how far you can go and get whatever joy out of the place you are in to the best of your abilities and trying to look at those abilities with a clearer eye or a, or a more accurate sense. To Joy is a play on Beethoven's uh, Ode to Joy, which is kind of known as one of the most glorious pieces of music about joy. And I think that's an explicit thing where he's trying to say, where can joy come from, right? Right, I think that leads to the best scene in the film, which is the ending and the use of the Ode to Joy performance, because we've already seen the arc of the narrative and the great loss then that uh, our lead suffers when uh, he finds out that, that his wife has died. Bergman has something to say about what a saving grace art can be, and he uses Beethoven as a way to demonstrate that to talk about how this piece, as a classical piece, with no words, is something everyone can develop their own version of what it's about Mm. and what it means. 
And the way this movie ends, we basically see how Bergman views the peace as something encompassing of not just the joy of life, but its sorrow and its largeness. And I think there's greatness in this ending. I don't think the film that preceded it earns that greatness. It's not one of Bergman's best works, but I really like kind of how he wraps it up and what he has to say about art and life. Well, that, that was really, I really like the way you put that. And actually I'm going to go back and watch this again because I, I didn't get anywhere near that much out of it, but if it's possible that that's there, then that's all the more reason to see this. To be um, sort of mildly unfair to Bergman, Ode to Joy is one of the most magnificent pieces of music for a reason. It helps. It carries, yeah. <laughs> it carries the load of a significant amount by showing an incredibly glorious feeling. But yes, I also think it would be worth a look because I think that's kind of a point. How does such a glorious event, how does such a glorious creation, how does moments in existence come in to be from such flawed characters. And so maybe the fact that this character is so personally repellent and is so lacking in so many other human values. And notably, I think it's also important that the movie is not showing that he's particularly more skilled. Like you don't see him fervently shaking his head as he's he's, he's really pulling like a great arpeggio on the violin. He's doing his part is what I'm getting at. He's part of what makes life joyful or wonderful or what can make it spectacular even if the person himself can be incredibly flawed and maybe that contrast is the specific message of the film and maybe the film may be a little reductive on that message but i think that's what he was aiming for next up this can't happen here or high tension released in 1951 In the aftermath of World War II, a married couple have escaped an unnamed dictatorship to live in an unnamed free country. Hint, the film was released at the time of the height of the Cold War. As a policeman investigates an enemy spy ring, he falls for the wife as suspicions are raised about where the husband's loyalties lie. Spoiler alert, it can't happen. Here. And uh, there will actually be spoilers about here as well. <laughs> but pro- but one of the biggest revelations on here, and something that I just found really amazing when I was seeing this movie, is number one, Ingmar Bergman is trying to make a film noir. And number two, he's actually pretty damn successful at it. It was really amazing, I found, to just look at these scenes of 
uh, and with all those details that people are familiar with on your on your noir tropes of like the the cars doing the bootlegger turns and and uh, figures emerging from the darkness with their fedoras and cigarette smoke evocatively wafting through the air, uh, secrets whispered from group to group, particularly in a really evocative shot that moves in amongst the dinner party as as news of an urgent situation comes about. Just amazed for me to think about about like how a guy jumps into a genre where none of his films were really going and uh, just how well he came off in that attempt. Well, that could be a matter of <laughs> dispute because this movie would get my Judge Priest Fuck This Movie Award <laughs> for the Ingmar Bergman canon. I hated this movie. I absolutely despised it. This is perhaps the dumbest plotted or the worst plotted movie I have ever come across. It is just beyond comprehension how misjudged this film is. You may be surprised to know that there is someone else who shares your opinion of that film, and that is Ingmar Bergman, who has apparently wanted this film to not see the light of day and not be involved in any of the re-releases. He doesn't like this at all, and the context of it is, is a couple things. First of all, it was purely for money. He was at a point now where he needed to do one for the studios. And the studio pretty much dictated how this film was, was going to be shaped. And he went along with it. And you can see that there's just none of the Bergman themes that he's been building up to in this film. Also, apparently, he was a little uncomfortable about how the... Uh, heightened storylines involving uh, immigrants being persecuted might uh, interact with real-life immigrants facing discrimination in uh, the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc. So, yeah, this, this, this film has a lot going against it as part of Bergman's canon, but I actually kind of like it too, and mostly for the reasons, Al, that, that, that you were saying, is, is that I think that despite his disinterest in the actual content of the film, he can't help but have a visual flair. And then when you apply that to noir, you've got some pretty unforgettable shots and really effective scenes of suspense. There's a particular scene I like where they're trying to find out who is the turncoat among the immigrants, and this is going on in the back room of a movie theater where a Donald Duck short is playing on the screen, and the soundtrack to this very tense discussion are these noises from the Disney characters. But the way he films it, they kind of create tension instead of what could have been uh, a silly effect. I don't disagree with the setting of that. And it is interesting that you can see the uh, other side of the projection uh, as a backdrop for this meeting you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But what, what's, like, for example, just use that meeting as a microcosm because you don't know who many of these characters are and like it isn't particularly suspenseful because they're trying to out someone as a spy where you don't really have a sense of what the plot is. And it, it in order for this to come together, he had to lay the, the track and allow you to put the pieces together. And it just, 
what was frustrating to me about this is he doesn't do that or the script doesn't do that. And then towards the end of the film, it's almost as if he realizes it because he abandons the serious setting and has a number of odd interludes of like Keystone cops and cars driving in odd places and pedestrians nearly getting run over in a way you would see in like vaudeville days or something. Did you guys ever think you'd see an Ingmar Bergman car chase? Right. I'll admit a lot of my uh, initial breathlessness reaction just comes from the sheer novelty and the audacity of seeing him do these unexpected things. Sometimes with the great artists, you can just have instances where their instincts abandon them. And the table setting you did, Brad, about the context of making this film makes perfect sense to me because I really feel like he's he's just lost the plot here, literally. All his gifts have, have deserted him, aside from like a few stray visuals here or there. But really, it, it's just so frustrating. I, I When we all watch this, I use the word infected, that I felt like the absence of plot had infected everything mm-hmm. else in this movie. And that's what it is. It's a contamination. Wow. It, it, will, <laughs> it will just eat away at everything else healthy in the film until it dies a miserable death. And this film dies that way. Hmm. Wow, man. Like, I can sort of see a little bit of your attitude with regards towards the ending. Because there is a definite point, and, and films are not necessarily filmed in order. The first thing you see in a film may be filmed like months later after the, after the second scene, for example. But I kind of look at it that the film is working on a noir level. And I do feel it's working on a noir level. I'm, I was a little more into the story and bought into the idea that there is a a kind of a a network of resistance people and what who are they resisting i agree there's a little bit unclear but it's kind of in the sense that they were remnants of a group that that while there is an ostensible social order that supports them you still can't trust that order and these were kind of just basically people who were trying to help maintain that there was some sort of independence or so, sort of like how militias in this country ostensibly say that we're just trying, just going to maintain that there won't be government oppression from an outside or inside force. Well, and I think that's an interesting idea. And, and like that concept of a resistance not knowing who they're fighting next to or who they can trust is done really well in, a, in early scenes of a movie like Army of Shadows, for oh, example. Definitely. Army of Shadows is magnificent. Now, that. That, that's a film that knows how to ground, that, that can set up the inherent confusion, the like fog of war that this film gets lost in and let you immerse yourself in that dread of not knowing who to trust. This movie is like, who the fuck are these people and why do I care? And unfortunately, I could not get past that. I, I mean, I really, I, I think this is the most frustrated I've ever been with a film that can't handle its plot. And it's not like it takes weird turns. It's like it was, it was so misjudged to begin with that the pieces never could have fit together. And Mm. it's just watching an excruciating 80 minutes or whatever this is of of seeing that that oil and water not mix. I was a lot less disappointed, I think, possibly because I was taking the film less seriously. Because it never really presents itself as a noir masterpiece. We're we're not talking about 
something at touch of evil level or anything near that. Frankly, I, I agree with a lot of your criticisms. The plotting is very unstructured, and you never really get the great movie moments where you're invested in each character. In fact, you have our villain is particularly uh, mustache twirling. Yeah, but even, even that I, I kind of enjoyed because he was so over the top that I started vibing about on how over the top evil he was portraying himself, especially since he's supposed to be married to one of the protagonists and she mm -hmm. doesn't notice until he reveals his evil plans. So in the end, for me, it, it's more of a silly film than anything else. So I'm enjoying these noir shots and these shadows and this take on this Swedish take on an American format that Bergman never really plays with either before or after. I think it should be noted upon how the role of expectations go and play on it. Because uh, my the way I was looking at it was that it's a pulpy noir, and I for me personally I usually don't care about the characters in a, in, a, in a noir film, but even in many films, most notably like The Big Sleep, even plot takes a backseat. Noirs are there to provide an atmosphere of, to me, an atmosphere of darkness and a, a, a sense of like despair that's like sort of in the corners of your mind, almost like a, a vague feeling more than any sort of practical demonstration of what a situation is. And I, on that level, I think the first two-thirds of it can't happen here, is being successful at just that elemental level, just at the visual level. But again, that's a level where I take noirs and I'm like saying, I don't care about the characters that much. I don't, I'm not looking for a really nuanced theme. I want expressions in darkness. And I think he was, I think he was getting to it. But there is a specific moment where it's like the rails all fall off. <laughs> yeah. They have a confrontation. One person's pointing a gun at another. And... They almost do like this Muppet Show trick of, hey, look at that painting over there. And he slaps the gun away. Now this guy has the gun. But now he becomes the talking killer and starts over-explaining things. Whereas one guy goes, here, let me move my shaker of salt. And no, I have knocked the gun away. No, I have the gun. And it was like, suddenly turns into something of like watching seven-year-olds play cowboys and Indians. Well, and it happens yet again. Well, yeah, yeah there, I was just say there are three sequences. Part of my problem with, I, I think based on what you guys are saying, I kind of identified why we see this film differently because I read its intro and its setup as wanting to make a statement and have some things to say. And if it is just a fun, fun noir, that's one thing, but I thought it was aiming for more than that mm -hmm. and missed spectacularly because there are really three, because a movie like you're describing will kind of leads up to set pieces, if you will. And there's, there are three that are really awful. And part of it is Bergman's filmmaking. It's the scene you talked about where the, the our hero and our bad guy are in the same room with the the girl their love the love triangle is in place yeah. right the, the the three guy the three elements are there and as you said like one has a drop on the other and they don't outsmart each other they literally take it's like a child taking a toy away from the other they outstupid each other and, yes. and it's filmed so poorly it's just literally like you and me away and I grab the mic out of your hand and then you grab it back for me and yes. that's all it is but I do think there's a delineation because. At that point, the film shifts styles. For me, we're in a pretty tense noir all the way up to that point. 
and it never recovers after that. After that, you get the car chases and a pretty goofy ending. It actually does end up failing as a noir due to this last-minute change of style. But because I'm already kind of having a goofy good time, and now the change of style has changed from noir to kind of a comedy, mm-hmm. I'm still, like, enjoying it, even though I I realize the film has gone off the rails. Well, see, the, the, the elevator never stopped that goofy for me. Like, it went straight down to, like, pit of hell. Okay. You know, <laughs> m- much, much like the character uh, jumping off the bridge or whatever he jumps off of at the end of the movie. Uh, this is the third set piece I mentioned that I felt, like, didn't work real well. It's a real kind of the coda to the foot chase. So we had the, the gun swap we talked about and the foot chase we talked about, which were filmed pretty poorly. That leads up to a situation where our villain is running away. He's being chased by members of the organization who is formerly working with. And he runs to this, this stairway and you see him go down the stairs. He comes back up the stairs and jumps off the stairs to his death. If I could compare it to something people might be familiar with, it'd be as if the scene in Star Wars where you see Han Solo run down the Death Star hallway and all of a sudden turn or yell and turn around and come back. And then you see the stormtroopers. Uh, chasing after him so you know why he turned around mm-hmm. so if you re-edit that star wars scene to a see hansel run down cut out the stormtroopers and have them run back down and jump in an elevator shaft <laughs> that's what the sequence is it was an inept filmmaking scenario. Oh, oh my god yes it felt like an indie movie where you were not allowed to film on a subway set and you just had your you had your bad guy try to go down this tunnel and like oh wait they locked the gate i can't do this we <laughs> gotta get back <laughs> except you didn't cut it Number one failure as a director is you don't co- don't have a scene where a guy runs off and just runs right back. <laughs> and I'm I'm split the difference between you. I like it's interesting that you're you're Brad. You're with the you're you find with the humor moment. And to me, but when the goes off the rails, I feel like though not to that degree. I do feel like Peter does because whereas you may not value like showing things in a noir way and leaving like the the immigrant situation dealing with that in a fair or nuanced manner. You may not value that, but I have no doubt that Bergman is dedicating himself to doing it. But when the people start slapping the guns around and then there's a moment where he punches our our erstwhile hero and he does a Charlie Chaplin (laughs) pratfall where he spins twice and then falls straight forward on his face, where I was like, Wait a minute. What, what, since when does this turn into a monkeys episode? <laughs> let, let me be clear that I I was not happy when oh, the okay. film shifted out of its mm-hmm. noir element. I would have far preferred it stuck with it till the end and maybe raised itself to the next level as mm-hmm. a noir. All I'm saying is that when it did do it, the film already had earned enough goodwill from me mm-hmm. that. I was able to just enjoy it at its level while also recognizing its flaws. So, yeah, yeah, it it would have been better had all that not happened. And there is a certain point, and yeah, there's a certain, it's an interesting uh, point you make because there's a certain dividing line where, like, how much can a bad ending, right, curdle your experience of a movie or how much of the great qualities of a movie, like, can surpass a terrible a, an ending that you find is is terrible as a fan of the tv show lost unfortunately <laughs> i can tell yes. you <laughs> um to me if i could describe this movie in terms of how it 
both sides of the coin. Imagine if you start a movie and it's Casino Royale, the Bond movie, <laughs> and the last third of it is the stupid Casino Royale comedy with Jimmy Bond played by Woody Allen, and it's that movie. <laughs> That's what It Can't Happen Here ends up happening and can't. <laughs> We get quite a bit of a break from that when we get to Bergman's next film, Summer Interlude, released in 1951. A ballerina near the end of her career receives a package at the theater which contains the diary of her first love. We see the relationship from years ago unfold on a beautiful island over an idyllic summer. But all things must end, which is just fine by the older family friend who has his own designs in mind. I liked Summer Interlude for a few reasons, probably the main one of which is the pacing really changes between this and a lot of the earlier films. We're still dealing with a romantic melodrama story, but we're taking a lot more time with it. There's a lot more, uh, especially as the main couple in the flashback, their relationship grows. We're, we're seeing a lot more of their smaller moments and a lot of time with no dialogue and really uh, enjoying the scenery of the island and creating an atmosphere. This is something that Bergman is going to expand upon, and I think this might be the first instance of his just changing a little bit of the feel of how uh, his films unfold. Uh, I'm definitely with you on the idea of he's oh, how he alters the pacing. And there were some earlier films which touched in on the idea of expression of these overpowering feelings of emotion can come from the landscape. How you have the sun uh, uh, glancing off the water and, or the ripples in a field or just how the shadows cast in across the trees and the leaves. He's trying to look at those parts of nature and, and drawing in to also make their the central relationship sort of a part of this kind of joy in a very nature-based kind of way. Now, where I think it falls short is that the central relationship is generic, bordering on insipid. <laughs> it is, oh, what a wonderful summer we had with Jean-Luc out in the French Riviera, the movie. Now, mind you, I'm being horribly dismissive because there are some extra depths to it, but the gist of it, I really didn't feel too much of a dynamics. It's just young love in the most simplistic of terms, really. I can uh, tell you where there also isn't any depth in this movie, and that's into the lake where our man Berger jumps into or dives into mm. yes. towards the end of the film. I, yeah, I, it's as shallow as he is, yeah. I, 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 teased, I teased this at the beginning of the episode um, and calling Bergman's films a dive into darkness. Uh, here we have it. Uh, uh, our main character, our boy Berger, is in a relationship, and he's 
Notably for Bergman, he's the insecure one. It's just very difficult to be around and the fact that you're always having to build him up, like self-loathing, basically sees himself as a weak character. Mm-hmm. And here, basically the film is a reminiscence of a lost love um, because the Berger character uh, in, in a scene that is unfortunately laughable literally says watch me dive off this rock he dives you don't see him you just see the uh, our female lead scream and then you see him crawl back up on the rock and uh, slowly die basically it's a throwback to the melodrama structure we saw earlier this is the first kind of young love film we'll see and he'll go back to this again so i think he's found something maybe from a commercial perspective which will help him it doesn't quite come together here. There are some interesting elements. And uh, one thing I, I found that was interesting is actually it's based on his actual life. He reversed some of the characters, but it's about um, a young woman he was in love with who contracted polio. So he, um, he exaggerated that and reversed the genders. But it's basically, again, drawing on his own life to uh, tell a story of loss and to paint himself as insecure and weak. I have to say that the reason for his insecurity is made readily apparent when you see his horrible parental figures, a dad who is just basically enamored and to a stepmother who unfortunately looks like the wicked stepmother from Snow White if Marty Feldman played her. <laughs> She's such a hideous apparition crone that it is almost as big of a non-sequitur fantasy is a stuffed cat from it rains on our love like from what planet did these guys come from contrasting this to the earlier films i I do think it's notable that he continues the flashback strategy Mm -hmm. that is reminiscent of those earlier films but as i'm kind of listening to our discussion of this and, and previous films i'm realizing how i'm viewing a lot of this which is that I'm valuing mood over plot. Because I I basically agree with a lot of the criticisms that have been raised about this and, and some of the earlier films as far as plotting and storytelling goes. But if mood works, then I'm willing to overlook that just like, I could in in the last movie. Mm. And this one has like a number of really charming sequences, uh, one of which is Bergman's foray into animation. As, yes. Uh, that, <laughs> that's, that's a delight. That's agreed. Yeah. agreed. It was a wonderful scene. So as the characters are interacting and their relationship is deepening, one of them just starts drawing some uh, cute characters to be affectionate and then we see a little mini cartoon come up out of them and i just thought well there's something you don't see in many bergman films (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it is a really nice touch especially because it puts a a a great dot on the idea of this just as innocence and just how the way like when you're younger you can perceive things in these just really sweet simple flowing way and and the sentiments expressed in these animation of how the characters smile or their eyes get big as they're spooked by a by a silly looking ghost is quite delightful i'm definitely in the minority i think i was a bit disappointed in this film but i think generally it's pretty well thought of um and bergman himself said this is the first time he felt able to express himself so it's interesting to me that like it feels more of a throwback in that 
he's again putting somewhat awkwardly his themes into a melodrama that he thought this was some sort of turning point for him because I, I really see it as fairly in line with the movies we discussed earlier, uh, absent the young love setting. But I don't know. It, it feels a bit like he shoehorned things in here a bit more. There's kind of a monologue at the end about a God's silence and how I'll hate God from here this this point on due to the love I've lost. And it's like, where did that come from? I mean, I know this director, that's his point of view, but here it just feels like, whoa, you know, left turn sort of monologue. And mm -hmm. it's, it's not that that's not interesting. It just doesn't fit real well. The film has not been operating on that sort of theoretical level. It's all been about passion and romance, not about the absence of God, like a theological concern. Mm -hmm. Right, so it gets awkwardly put in yeah. via dialogue instead of naturally put in the way he'd end up doing in future films. That's Agreed. right, that's right. It's right. It comes out of her mouth as if like a 50-year-old uh, Swedish filmmaker was <laughs> had somehow teleported into her body, being John Malkovich style. This movie does the inversion of the absolute misstep of the previous one, in that the last five minutes yank it to Eight levels higher before it is to me just this sense of it was a wonderful summer and you should take it at that level but I find at the end he does this movement that is absolutely inspired that really gives this thing an extra power to it because when she first gets the diary a package with the diary of his life as she, the framing devices, she's turning the pages, and you see his face superimposed as it gets bigger and bigger. Vertigo-esque. Mm. Yes, vertigo-esque, yes. But in a really amazing moment for me after that, she looks through a diary again, and this time it's her own face that's becoming expanded. And soon after, she puts the diary away, and her body relaxes... And she finally attains a moment of re release, which is clear that her character has been really suffering under all this, the tragedy that happened in her life and has caused her to shy away from relationships and even professional friendships up to that point. Because what that says is, is, is something, it's like a principle that this philosopher Lacan said. Things happen to you. And your first reaction is just honoring the situation. But if you continue to dwell on it, that's not the situation anymore. It's you. It's you. So what it's saying is, is that these moments of tragedy, I mean, there's those things that happened. And it shows that there's a way that you should get past it. And to the extent that you dwell on, on insecurity or loathing or regret or guilt, this is something that's part of your character and it's something that you need to try to get past for yourself. This is, I think, an amazing philosophical insight that I was not expecting. And so that's a case of being floored in a very positive way for me. Well, I think we've buried the lead long enough with this thoughtful discussion of uh, summer interlude we have. I'd just like to t touch on the film's real high point for me. Which is? Which is, is the greatest canine performance of all time. Uh -huh. Gruffman the <laughs> that's, dog. <laughs> that's right. Bergman's managed to do noir. He's managed to try out absurdist comedy. But oh my God, 
It's his dog movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we've touched on the high-minded, moving on, and all this stuff. But really, like the key part for this film, I think you'll enjoy at a very basic level, is indeed Gruffman the dog. Although he is dispatched, sadly. Mm. And, and after our boy Berger takes his ill-fated dive off the rock, Gruffman was Berger's dog, and now he's left alone in the world. Our female lead says... To her uh, uncle, I believe, hey, can you shoot Gruffman now that his owner is dead? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I'll get right on that. And I'm like, you don't fucking shoot Gruffman. <laughs> Gru- <laughs> he doesn't even have the dignity of a of an old yeller death scene. Because <laughs> Gruffman didn't die. Gruffman lives. I want Gruffman to live as well. And I find it also super cool that like Bergman deals with such care upon depicting Gruffman in a way that he deals with the, the care of depicting the hu- interactions between the human characters. You guys know that in any other kind of American movie which has a dog featured so prominently, the dog would be in some other room and they would have humans doing their human things and they would cut to the dog as a reaction shot. But not here. Here Gruffman is... Really intrinsic on on all sorts of things that these people are are, are involved in, yeah. and the camera always finds a way to have Gruffman hanging around. You, you you may think we're joking, but I don't think it's an exaggeration to say Gruffman may be our third lead of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, it's a lead who knows about burying. <laughs> well, sadly, we must move on to. A more canine-free film, mm. Waiting Women, released in 1952. Are trapped in an elevator. Now here I have a really particular and peculiar interpretation because I really adore this movie for only one reason. That's five percent mm-hmm. of what the movie is really about. In some ways, this may be the most generic of what Bergman has done. For one thing, the general premise is so absolutely a sex-in-the-city kind of template that I, for a while there I was starting to dub this movie, uh, it's the Horny Housewives of Helsinki. <laughs> These individual episodes, the quote-unquote dramatic developments, did not end up just to be really involving and in some cases just became actively annoying. <laughs> I don't know what you so guys where's thought. Where's the good news? <laughs> Other than well, before, that, Mrs. Before, Lincoln, well, how was the play? <laughs> right, of course, of course. Well, before I get into why I think, why I really adore this film, um, I'd like to see what if you guys had a similar impression or if any one of these three stories drew you in. I, I did not adore this film. 
because it basically starts out like a penthouse letter. <laughs> it, it's like yep. she, she's talking to her friends and let me tell you about the time I cheated on my husband. Mm-hmm. And everybody just settles in and we get this flashback into a really basic story of a woman cheating on her husband with a younger man. Somewhat made a little more interesting because she decides to reveal this infidelity to her husband immediately with the lover in the room, creating all kinds of awkwardness, but also just kind of making sure this film never has a good mood setting. Like I was talking about consistency of mood in the, Mm -hmm. uh, earlier films and here the moods are all over the place and not in a way that complement each other so then the second part basically grinds the film to a halt as we're having this kind of interior look at this woman suffering through her pregnancy but the frivolity of the first part is intruding now on what should be a much deeper piece, but that's nothing compared to how the depressing aspects of this middle part absolutely undo the third part, which is supposed to be this comedy, and actually introduces two of Bergman's best comic actors, Gunnar Bjornstrand, which we mentioned before, and Eva Dahlbeck, who will basically be Bergman's go-to for comedy for the next few years. But I'm not sure if it really works here, not so much because of my criticisms about their performances or the interaction in the scene, but because the mood of the scene is so completely at odds with with everything that came before it. Yeah. Mm. We've talked leading up to this film about how he's dabbled in different genres all across the way and across different films. This really felt like he was trying to do all his dabbling in one film to mix success. Um, there are four main characters in this in this story, and they're each intended to tell a, a, a tale of love. Although one of them inexplicably at the end just decides she's not going to tell a story. So right. we have only three of the four women tell a story, which I have no explanation for that. It, it's bizarre to get to the end of your film and have a character say, I got nothing for you. But of the three stories that are told, I, I think one of them is successful. It's the middle one for me. The first one is, is, is okay. And the third one, I, I was really misjudged to me. I, I, at that point, like, the film had been dragging on for a while and it was difficult to get through um, an attempted comedic sequence that really didn't have any laughs in it for me. So this is another one where, again, it's interesting that this comes after Summer Interlude where Bergman says he's now able to express himself because this is still a real mixed bag. This certainly isn't a disaster, but I, I really, I, I'm, I'm well below the level of adoration now. Sorry. Mm-hmm. No, that no, you shouldn't. You should absolutely not be sorry because I completely agree with actually both of those arguments, particularly in Brad's sense that the tonal shifts did not really quite work as a consistent arc. It and it leaves you wrong-footed on on a certain way. The middle area is so harsh in its depiction that I can definitely see how you get at odds with the comedic part of part three. 
So why do I love this movie? Well, because the thing that I think does well is something that I really tremendously value and is something that is so rare in movies. And it shouldn't be. Because what it does is the, the framing device, you do have like 10 minutes before where you just see them, the women interacting with each other and how they get the groceries or how they pine for the, the men in their life. And so when each one of these people reminisce, the film is filmed in the exact manner of their personality. The first character is in between the generations. And so it's like this case of like a, a relationship extinguishing. So Bergman films it in like almost a standard like soap opera style. The young person is full of possibilities that she can't barely understand. And then she's dealing with pregnancy, which is already a huge a huge change in her life. And so her stuff is expressionistic and wild and crazy and out of control in a way that can't be more different. And meanwhile, the, the older couple who would have this kinks of cynicism and self-knowledge about their own foibles and how they can use it against her, that is then filmed as a farce. And inside that elevator, depending upon the position people have in their arguments, like uh, he is moving the camera up and down and the elevator lights are going off and on. They're illuminating different parts of a person. And it is Creative, but creative in a completely different way than the second one is, and completely different than what the first one is. So whereas when I started this movie, I was thinking, this is the horny housewives of Helsinki. By the end of this movie, I thought, holy shit, I just saw Romanshaman. <laughs> the glory of that film is how everyone's perspective about the truth is shown and filmed in a different way in Kurosawa's masterpiece. Why haven't more movies done this? To show the way that people view something in a film is from their own perspective. I have never seen that done to romance. But I think this is an incredibly fertile ground for more films. That's really interesting because we've talked about how no matter what else is happening, Bergman is visually on target and able to do these amazing things uh, with the, the camera. But what you're saying is that he's able to ad adjust the camera to genre. Yes. So we have a different visual style for a different genre, which is creative. And so I, I agree with you that that element is cool. I just wish it was to an end that involved me more because I was invested in none of these characters. Right, and I totally see where you're coming from. It's unfortunate that the individual stories that he is using his directorial technique and is honestly a mastery of directorial technique to depict in these three distinct ways, they just don't support this really great premise. This is essentially an anthology film in a lot of ways, one director doing different styles. And I think that that's really hard for anyone to pull off to establish the visual styles you're talking about, Al, but then to make compelling stories within those individual narratives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, that, it just doesn't quite get there on that second point for me. Yeah, yeah. And I also say there's another notable thing is that certain characters who are incidental to the first story... They show up again and they turn out to be central characters of the second story or central characters of the third story because there's like three brothers. That's an element that would be used brilliantly 
in Christoph Kozlowski's Three Colors trilogy. Yes, exactly. Boy, does it say something about expectations in this kind of what seems to be just like a, a series of tawdry paperback stapled together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but to literally see a Kozlowskian thoughtful conceptual device put into this film is amazing. But also, I have to admit, this is something that I really enjoy. I really treasure how films can show a same situation in a different framework and how our perspectives are changed by how filmmaking is done. Like One of the greatest cinematic achievements I've ever seen is a series called The Trilogy by um, a Belgian director named Lucas Bellavux. And it's three films. One film's a spy film about a, with a fugitive type story. A second is a, is a wacky romantic comedy. And a third is a story about a corrupt cop who has to do corrupt dealings to help his drug-addicted wife. But they're all the same sets of characters. And they actually have the same situations. But depending upon which film you're looking at, it's shown in a suspenseful way, or a dramatic way, or a comedic way. And this is also a sentiment that that Renoir does in Rules of the Game so effectively to show how everyone has their reasons, but the reasons are different and can depend on the viewpoint. So again, it's a sweet spot for me. Maybe to like the Peter to like your uh, uh, affection for Gruffman. It's like <laughs> sometimes the movie can hit you in a very particular way, and this is why the movie really works for me. We all, right, we so all we, have our Gruffmans. Yeah. So we will go from your sweet spot to Bergman's sweet spot. Oh, fascinating! On um, yes, in more <laughs> ways, in more ways than one, in his film right. *Summer with Monica*, released in 1953. Monica is a young free spirit of a woman, very alluring to a working stiff like Harry. They leave everything to cast off in Harry's father's boat for a summer of love on the island beaches. But reality reasserts itself when Monica becomes pregnant and a couple faces their future, responsibilities and all. Before we get into this film's content and what uh, it's about, we should briefly mention how the film was received in sweden it was received very well it was a movie that marked a a success and and more attention for bergman but in america it received attention for a completely different reason we we talked about some of the sexual frankness that we've seen throughout uh, bergman's films and was available in swedish films but by the 50s this was something being very coveted by some American audiences who did not have these kind of movies available to them. So in the 50s, we have uh, a series of uh, nudie films that start to become popular, some of which are import, edited imports from Europe. And Summer with Monica became a prime example of this. And so it was re-edited 
and uh, distributed under the title of Monica, the story of a bad girl, <laughs> with all the uh, sexual elements uh, edited together in a way that made the film seem far more uh, pornographic than it actually was. Yeah, I beg to differ slightly because now some people might ding the uh, American uh, distributors of the film for you're taking this movie and portraying it as this piece of exploitation about this horny young girl and her sexual adventures and just basically providing a, a subject to ogle at. But the thing is... That is what this movie is about. <laughs> that she is a lust object in this film. Uh, there is moment. There is straight up moments that Russ Meyer would envy as she's bending over and her uh, significant décolletage descending right into the middle of the camera frame, or when she's sunning on a boat. Uh, topless, or scampering around the cliffs in a way that would cause Terrence Malick to uh, start blushing incredibly. I guess one person's eroticism is another person's pornography, and there is maybe kind of a fine line there. And the context of the film is we are... We bring into Bergman's world somebody very important in all the rest of the films we're going to be talking about, uh, young Harriet Anderson, who, in addition to being his leading lady, also became Igmar Bergman's real-life love as he was uh, getting divorced from his second wife. Him and, uh, and Harriet Anderson began a, uh, an affair. This is one of those films where she, I think she could definitely be described as a muse. Her beauty is self-evident, but to Bergman, who is, has this deeply personal feelings about her, he puts that into his filmmaking. Now, I would say that unlike maybe the American uh, bastardization of it, there's still a lot of artistic value going on. There's still storytelling going on. But uh, one of the film is most notable for its eroticism. Well, well I, I'd like to. It's interesting to me that this film did get bastardized in that way because I, I'd like to make the argument this film. This is the twelfth film we're talking about. It comes out in 1953, and I'd like to make the argument that 1953 is the real transition year for Bergman. I think in most coverage of his career, people point to 1957, which we'll get to later in another episode, but that, and that's the year that features Wild Strawberries and the Seven Seal. But here in 1953, starting with Summer with Monica, I think we do get a more mature filmmaker because what this film does is really, for me, ground the young love in a way that fits with his sensibility because you see it from its impassioned beginnings to its death with a whimper, if you will. It's framed amongst all these beautiful shots of nature, not only on the island where it's shot, but also with these various insert shots of nature, which kind of put a contemplative um, mood to the film where, while it's about passion, it helps you picture this relationship in the natural world and in the life of many people who have a first love and are bound to have that first love disappear. And really what this movie does is elevate that story to a level we haven't seen in 
Bergman's filmography to this to this point, and it's really the next step we've been waiting for here in film number twelve. To me, this is the this is the real um, start of Bergman's career because he shows this love in a kind of transcendent way that aims for like the spiritual or the na- or or saying it's a part of like the natural world. Well, I, I think yes, but I think combine that with his own sort of view of the human condition as being uh, one of loneliness and isolation and saying that like you can find that but it's inevitable that you're going to lose it as part of the natural order of things and that's kind of his sour perspective but it this movie because i think right as you said because it's so evident that he has feelings for harriet anderson the camera has feelings for her too right the Mm -hmm. camera loves her in this movie and it's interesting, um, we can talk about her as a potential role model or not later, but really what works for me here is that it's the passion, it acknowledges the passion that someone like that in your life can create. At the same time, it puts it in the real world and let, and kind of, from Bergman's perspective, he'll let you know that you are going to lose it and it's going to be a tough go. Um, but there is this, there are these moments um, that you have in your life and not only do you get to enjoy them, but you also have the challenge of, of learning to live without them. Right. Cause I, I think that's resonant because everybody who knows this movie kind of thinks about the scenes at the beach and the, uh, idyllic part of the film, but what gives it more power is where it goes after that, because she does, become pregnant and they realize they need to go back to the real world. They need to figure out kind of what to do now that this baby is coming and the film's mood just completely shifts because they are very ill prepared for family life. Nothing about uh, this summer of love really gives them the tools they would need to have a long-term relationship. So we see they want to make a go of it. Uh, it's, it's really interesting to see these two people who seemed so connected very uh, abruptly disconnect and realize that what can work in one setting may not work at all in another. Basically, imagine if the Blue Lagoon turns into a neorealist fable <laughs> at the last fourth of it. But unlike some of like the the quick tone changes we've talked about in earlier Bergmans, this one has a definite meaning to it, which is interesting in a number of ways. But I actually differ with your guys' opinions on a, in a number of ways on this film, too. Like, to your point, Peter, I do not find this a mature movie. I find this an old man's movie. It does not give complexity towards Monica. At no point does she even have a flicker of recognition of her own situation, nor does she show an ounce of caring for any other human being aside from herself. Nor do I think that this is a depiction of love so much as it is a tremendous encounter of passion that lasts over the summer. Contrasting her arc... It's the story of Harry and the woman who came into his life, and not in a manic pixie dream girl way, but a 
But a, a, maybe a penthouse way where she turned his life upside down, got him to quit his job. And by the way, both the jobs the characters have are depicted in almost a cartoonish manner. Everyone's a jerk and, mm-hmm. and always every line is done to put everyone down. So it's it's really overselling the idea of like, they have to get away. They have to get away. Well, but that's how kids feel, right? I mean, they're, they're 18, 19. I mean, doesn't every kid want to run away like that? That's That's part of life at that point. Okay, right. But then a mature outlook would be able to do something like similar like Itumama Tambien does. Now, mind you, that's a very high bar. But what it does is it acknowledges the joyful parts of uh, youthful exuberance while also saying, okay, but they are being a little silly. But it doesn't. But but this one goes all the way into fully indulging like, yeah, this town's full of assholes. Of course you should get the hell out of there. And when they get to that island, so much is dedicated on her figure. I feel an honest depiction is you would see it from how Harry is seeing her, but it is clearly how Mr. Bergman is looking at her. Hmm. And Brad, you said that like the relationship turned. There was no relationship. She is not want a relationship. She doesn't want to be in this marriage. She doesn't want to raise this kid. She spends every moment complaining about having to do all of these things. And that attitude has, not only does that not change, but if you look at the beginning of the movie, she is always that person. And but what he they couldn't see it. And I think that's the interesting part of the movie, is it's about the difference between fantasy and reality. So you're, you're, you're definitely right that it, the se- sequence on the island is not a mature one. It's very much from a naive point of view and an idealistic point of view of this abstract idea of love and sex and lust and and all these things. Mm -hmm. But I think it's thematic that she always was maybe not a great match for him. And that when push (laughs) comes to shove and we see them together back home in a real situation that their relationship turns so ugly and where he could only see her as beautiful in one context with the oppression of reality coming down on them. She no longer seems as beautiful. Now we see her ugly side to me. Like it feels like we're giving short shrift to the, her home environment and her work environment. And you can, I mean, maybe it felt like it was too one note to you, but She's with a family that is poor, that has basically four or five of them sleeping in one apart, well, one room apartment. Um, she's basically molested at work constantly, like getting grabbed and fondled. So to me, to have her reaction be, I am getting the fuck away from all this stuff, that's a reasonable reaction. I don't think she's a bad person for wanting to get away from that. And Brad, as you mentioned, she can't or he can't see her, but she also can't see him other than a means to get her out of the life she wants to get away. And the reality hits her too when she is stuck with all these responsibilities or, and they both are because there's no way the two of them can maintain that idyllic island. It's just not possible. They both saw each other as an escape, but life intrudes and there's no escape possible for these people. They're both flawed characters who came together and for good for a short period of time, but ultimately it couldn't last beyond that. 
And to me, that's where this film shows maturity is that it sees their social situations. It lets the, the director and the voice of the film sees their social situations in the way the characters can't themselves. And that's leaves it to the audience to pick up those pieces and get what you can out of it. For me, I got a fair amount. Um, and it's interesting to me that this is such a notorious film, if you will, because to me, what I got out is actually the exact opposite. Now, it's interesting to me, Al, that you didn't get any of that, I, I think, for me, that, that I got, but, you know. Well, I've, well, the reason I do that is that because I don't see of any positive action that she does, apart from the most base nature. It's just that she is always embracing life in a way that a beast would. I think there's no coincidence that there's a scene where she steals a roast and she's hiding in the bushes and 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 I think this is part of Bergman's intent. He over he cuts it with other animals oh, and yeah. he cuts her in the grass. Mm-hmm. She is this human sexual impulse on a feral level. And sure, she has a good justification of course to the way the Bergman stacks the deck in her favor to leave, but it's also but that also doesn't justify her behavior. Why? How she's so dismissive about like Harry's. Every time Harry wants to reach out to her, she basically completely ignores him. It's like, oh, hey, this is a nice house. I'm going to live here for a while. Well, or all- she never cares for the baby. Apart from the roast stealing, which is only because she herself is bored with all the mushrooms that he's been cooking for her. She spends the mass majority of her time basically whining about her whining about her situation, and it's kind of a it's incredibly like bratty behavior that has not at all come across as a realization of anything. But just like uh, the character in To Joy, who had those negative traits, I think Bergman doesn't oversimplify when those traits occur. So. Yeah, she is a very flawed character, but she's motivated. There's reasons for it. Some of it isn't her fault. Some of it is her immaturity, being in a situation she never asked for. Peter, you made a really good point about how toxic her work life was, and then we can extrapolate every situation mm-hmm. she she might be in. So yeah, I, I don't think... We're meant to uh, approve of her mm-hmm. actions, but I do think we can understand them. Yeah, it, to me, I guess I would put value on when you're trapped, getting yourself out of a trap is an end to its own, an end of its own. And to me, like whatever steps from her perspective, she's taking the steps to get herself out of that trap of a situation. And what's great about this film is that it recognizes that, but also lets you know what the price is going to be on the other side of that. And that's sort of Bergman's dark point of view. To me, like, I think that works pretty well here. Well, to be to be fair on the movie, there is a similar point to the character in Thirst, who also has this really bad behavior. But again, she's trapped by a situation involving a pregnancy and that should go, really should go a long way because it is a phenomenal imposition to put on any person, much less a person so young. So I think it should be fair to deal on, on those terms for like explaining a lot of her actions. But there are ways beyond that where you can try to understand a person's plight, which she's never tries to do, which I feel like all of the imprisonment in the world like can say, well, you can try to be decent to another to a human being who's trying to support you which she never does. 
But actually, to that end, this is one of the most nihilistic movies about infatuation that's ever been made. There is a moment, an absolutely devastating moment, when she is, and by the way, it's a brilliant by Bergman, when she is leaving the house, and instead of paying the rent money, she gets a new coat, and you see her getting a, her cigarette lit by a hand that's clearly not of her husband. And then as she smokes a cigarette, she faces the camera, and Bergman removes the light and just has her face. And honestly... That is kind of like the biggest like confrontation on our expectations when we're already like, oh, wait, she is being bad. Yeah, that's a really powerful moment because up until that point, we're really looking at her through the director's male gaze. Yes. And then when she looks back at the camera, she looks at us. It's, it's, it's accusatory towards us. <laughs> yeah, it, right. It's, it also does some pretty good support in the favor of looking at things from her perspective. But there's two moments that go right after that really support my take that it's a nihilistic film is when finally Harry confronts her about the affair because he sees a very losery character who has defeated in, in, a, in a fight earlier in the movie that she ends up having the affair with. When he confronts her about it, She's sitting on the bed, and she looks at him, and he asks, why him? Of all people, why him? And she says, well, because we're in love. And she has this little sneering expression on her face. And at that moment, I take that to be, that's what she thinks love is. And more importantly, she is mocking him at that moment for ever thinking that love would be any different. And then the very last image involves a great use of a mirror as the home is broken. All the parts are being sold to these old vendors who notably commented on the burgeoning romance earlier in the movie while they're getting drunk. And as he looks in the mirror, you see images, just like from, which a good point about Ode to Joy, because that's a good connection, because you're also seeing parts of their idyllic treatment in the mirror. But then the mirror fades, and you see the re what I think Bergman's saying, this is the reality. This, all this stuff about you think was love, this was just a fling just a moment of sensation, and the reality is these old people will get to just take all your shit away. This use of mirror images is something that Bergman is going to keep using to, to great effect, particularly in his next movie, Sawdust and Tinsel, released in 1953. So When the traveling circus comes to town, its aging ringmaster and his young lover both seek an escape from the dreary lower rungs of show business. The ringmaster hopes to reconcile with the wife and children he left behind, while the lover seeks advantage from a manipulative actor in the local theater troupe. Now, this is what I'm just going to say more like it. <laughs> I remember when I was younger, I liked the circus, but thanks to the efforts of one Federico Fellini, I ended up hating movies about, about the circus. But this 
is a great example of using the circus for some night great meaning as well as a wonderful inversion on the city folk versus country folk formula. And I think this is a way where, Peter, to your point about how his filmmaking technique had expanded, I think it takes a further step in this one. Oh, yeah. No, this... Man, this film is fucking dark. I mean, seriously. Like, there are, there are like, some Bellatar moments <laughs> in the beginning, <laughs> beginning of this film. So the earliest parts of this film are show the circus troupe basically... Um, traveling through a rainstorm and mud and slop just to get set up their tent and and go through um, and put on a show. And you're, you're just like, if this is their life Mm -hmm. and this is where the film is starting us, Mm -hmm. it's going to be a rough road and damnation with more clowns. That's right. Mm -hmm. Up until this point, uh, my admiration for Bergman's films are always well this aspect of the film is excellent but then you have this this thing that doesn't quite work and i can't find anything here i i would say that i think peter you mentioned uh, summer with monica as the turning point but for me sawdust and tinsel is bergman's first unequivocally great film and the birth of the artist he will be throughout the rest of our discussion because all his tools are being used here. We open up with uh, a dream sequence uh, that's being described about uh, the circus clown who sees his wife basically nude among soldiers at a beach being harassed and flaunting her body and being humiliated. And he's humiliated by this situation and has to bring her out of this situation. But it's filmed in this washed out kind of white light. And even though we've had some impressive dream sequences prior to this, this one is next level. This one is just truly great filmmaking because it's not only visually exciting, but it, it evokes the pain that is going to inform the rest of the story. I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that to me, this is one of the greatest set piece sequences I've ever seen in film. Um, to your point about the filmmaking, Brad, it really, it's playing with kind of tropes of silent film and exaggerated physical performance. Most notably, um, the character of Frost, who's the clown played by Anders Eck. Um, and really throughout the film, but especially in this sequence, the pain, the exaggerated pain on his face in the clown makeup as he disrobes down to his underwear, basically, and goes to pull his nude wife out from the surf she's swimming in with the soldiers. And while he's doing that, both their clothes are stolen. So the sequence goes on for an extended period of time of him carrying her and trying to cover up her nudity as he takes what feels like a 20 mile walk back Mm -hmm. to the circus. You can just feel like these people's human nature being destroyed every step they take. The humiliation is just gradual and gradual until it's total. And that's the start of this film to me like if you're going to show someone a segment and say this is ingmar bergman i might pick this segment of a film not a film uh, as a whole Mm -hmm. but just pick a 10 minute or whatever it is segment this is it i think but it's not exactly about loneliness so much as it is about like how society grinds people down that's about humiliation yes it's about humility definitely and also how it ties into 
masculinity and regimentation. It's almost like a, a, a sort of rebuke to the battleship Potemkin in a way because it's this abstraction done to a... I agree with you guys that it's abstraction done to an almost level of pure cinematic perfection because just how the soldiers are hooting at this lady in the water is alternated by shots of cannons firing. Mm-hmm. And the cannons are firing, moving to the left, moving to the right. You cut to the, a close-up shot of a guy's, uni- a guy's uniform. Cut to a guy's laughing face. Another cannon, another cannon. So sexual energy and regimentation just turning like this, what would be like, I guess, a, a romantic encounter to make it turn ugly and grotesque. And something that, that, that cruelly inflicts pain on people is just depicted in the great flashes, just impressions that guide you toward this toward this message. And when this is over, the film proper begins and explores the same thing. We have a new lead in this film. Ake Gronberg gives a monumental performance as the ringmaster. He has to do so many levels here. He's he's matched very well by Harriet Anderson again in a role that, while still involves sexuality, could not be more different than Monica. And what they have in common is this restlessness that they are so unhappy with their lot in life. Even though they've found each other and should be able to find solace in that, uh, they both want other things, and the movie really explores what that means, because he gave up what was important to him earlier when he, you know, he had his, his wife and children, and he left them. And so, on the one hand, we feel badly for him that the one thing he seems to want in the course of this film is this normal family life. But we also realize that he threw that away voluntarily. And what uh, Gronberg does acting-wise is gives us both those things, gives us a degree of sympathy and then an understanding that this is a, a, a man who is very flawed and may not have any idea what he wants. Yeah, I think key on what you're saying is this is something I find so prevalent in this movie, is it's about understanding. And, and the characters have a certain lack of understanding, but also a certain understanding of their situation, too. You're totally right. Harriet Anderson, while still being this absolute beacon of like sexuality and, and importantly, sexual agency, in other words, she understands her effect and, and the ways that she can use it. But there is an awareness of that aspect of complicated thought through action and she goes through some really serious crises of conscience as does Ake as he's has to rectify the things that he wants with the truth about the kind of person that he is well essentially what they learn is that in the transactional reality of the world is that they're on the losing side whether Mm -hmm. whether it's in their career or in their love lives everything has become transactional and they're losing out um we find through Harriet's character that there's an extended sequence where after the entire circus troupe has gone to a local theater and asked to borrow costumes, which again is where the contrast of sawdust and tinsel comes from. The sawdust is the floor of the circus. 
the tinsel is the light and grace of the theater. Um, that comparison is echoed in an interaction she has with one of the actors where she's basically, um, the one thing she has, she thinks she has to offer is her sexuality. And that ends up being purely transactional, almost in a prostitutional way. And it also is tied to economics because she offers herself for what she told as a valuable necklace and it ends up being worthless. The level of this film is that it's taking the one thing these people feel they have to offer and telling them that it's worthless. I love how the film uses the circus and theater as class avatars. The theater is the ruling class. The theater is the privileged. Mm -hmm. And the circus are the people who are struggling and trying to get what they want out of life. But in this world, it's almost seemingly impossible. And, and we see this kind of class oppression of how the actors of the theater treat the, the circus folk. And it's just really interesting how Bergman is able to take themes and work them both on a personal level and on a political level. Yeah, more than I think any other film up to this point. He's not been a slouch in terms of his visual composition, but this one is been overabundance. There is so much detail and just the things dangling inside that cabin where like Ake and, uh, and Harry and Anderson share as they travel. It's such a sharp contrast when these dark squares move across a bleak early morning landscape. You almost expect them to find seven figures dancing the other way, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the theater is so regimented, like with straight lines, straight lines of lamps. And the bric-a-brac is of a, such of a different tone than the, than the kind of ramshackle stuff that the circus people have to deal with. And here is a case where that dream sequence does a tremendously rewarding moment at the end because what is that? That's a person's story. And since the person telling it is Frost, the, the clown, it's really wild and crazy because the person saying it is a wild and crazy guy. Just gesticulations are to be believed. But it happens again in the real world of the movie. The actor who sleeps with Harry and Anderson makes an appearance at the circus and there's a confrontation and then it pushes it another level further because suddenly people who are from the theater troupe, who you never think would give the time of day to the circus, they suddenly start appearing and then his wife is in the audience. Suddenly, the circus is not just a, an event that happens, it's a metaphor for this guy's, in, the ring is his entire existence. Right. The conflict between him and the actor is his elemental, his personal conflict made literal. Well, and what's interesting about that sequence, too, is that, so what happens is he's heckled uh, from the crowd by the actor who slept with Harriet. They have a fight, and essentially the actor beats him up. He's left beaten, bloody in the middle, on the floor in the sawdust of the circus. And so what you have here now is really a theater of cruelty where every person is going to find or every entity is going to find someone that they can punch down and beat down on. That's basically the way Bergman sees life is that it's going to be someone beating on whatever they can beat on. Because what happens here is you have the theater folk essentially beat up the circus folk, emasculating him entirely. And the film 
goes from there to a drunken circus master. And what does he do? He takes a gun and after contemplating suicide, he shoots their caged bear. So what's the only thing that's lower than him? A caged animal. And he's going to destroy that because he's, God damn it, going to be higher than something in this world, right? And that's just such a cruel, difficult to swallow philosophy, but it's rendered so beautifully here. These scenes are so heartbreaking. And then you wonder how anyone or anything can survive this. And you have some great acting back and forth between uh, Gronberg and uh, Harriet Anderson as he realizes what's happened, further humiliating him, but also humiliating her. She is just as much a victim in all this. It seems something that is irreparable, but it's interesting that the film's conclusion is that they have to go on and they have to stay together and both their dreams are dashed but the circus goes on the show must go on yeah again i the way it just reflects on and takes things that we know in a symbolic way and makes it literal is something that i get overjoyed by like when you say in the confrontation peter where he gets emasculated but the imagery, the way he does, Bergman does it is brilliant. You see a close-up as he moves towards the camera. Then you see a close-up of the actor as you're meant to think that he's approaching. And then the actor throws a punch. And the camera whips back. But you don't see him. You see a clown. The image that you see mm -hmm. is just the impression that that everyone in the audience basically right. sees. And then you, you, you see in the background, out of focus, as the real person staggering in. But that's the real person. The image, the clown, is what the, is a symbol. Right. At, made this, at this point, a fight scene isn't even going to be just about the fight. Yes. He's not going to film it in a realistic way. He's going to use everything he's got to be evocative. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This is where I think it's a leap ahead. That thing that he was exploring in prison about the different levels of people telling stories and mm -hmm. how those relate directly. It runs through this film. And he, I think he attains a mastery yeah. in this film. 1953 was a hell of a year for him. For sure. But this was not a movie that was a great financial success. That will still have to come. Would he have more success in his next film, A Lesson in Love, that was released in 1954? This comedy begins with a successful gynecologist separated from his wife and having an affair with a patient. Thanks to a reunion aboard a train, the soon-to-be ex-couple may not be so ex after all, but in addition to the husband's dalliances, his wife has also taken up with a lover, his former best friend. So I'm not surprised that Bergman does comedy because I had known of a, a couple comedies, but what really surprised me at this stage in the Bergman filmography, 
is that he would bring to us a hysterical screwball comedy that brings back the couple we were talking about from the elevator in Waiting Women, Eva Dahlbeck and Gunnar Bjornstrand, this time giving them full material for what has to be Bergman's funniest film. If there is a funnier Bergman film, or for that matter, a funnier film, I'd like to see it, because I found this one really funny, and... This is one of my most favorite surprises on this podcast, because even noir, I could see it. <laughs> Dark comedy, I can see it. Screwball comedy from Ingmar Bergman? No way. I would sooner predict a dog movie with Bergman than I would have a screwball <laughs> comedy. And yet he does it, and it's both a really good screwball comedy, maybe one of the best made, and also what's amazing is it's clearly Bergman, too. If you were to ask, well, what would a Swedish movie, which a screwball comedy would have? Well, maybe they'd make some mirth out of someone trying to kill themselves, <laughs> and then the ceiling caves in. And they do it. He does it. And despite the fact that it is literally the cliche you think about it, it's still super funny. <laughs> and you have to give a lot of credit to not only uh, the two lead actors, but just a scene-stealing performance from Ake Gronberg, who we've last seen in tragic circumstances mm -hmm. in Sawdust and Tinsel, here mm -hmm. as the larger-than-life Carl Adam, who is the lover of, of the wife character who she's basically using to make her husband jealous. And he's like this force of nature yep. everywhere he goes he, he's just a party waiting to happen well i think everyone needed a party after sawdust and tinsel right so mm -hmm. including ingmar bergman's financiers who were uh as the uh, criterion collection euphemistically put it uh unhappy with sawdust and tinsel's unpleasantness and the <laughs> corresponding reaction in the marketplace too said unpleasantness so he, what we have here is uh ingmar coming back with something a bit more marketable but doing it very very well and aided by the all-star cast you mentioned it shares the scruple comedy to a level that rivals i'm gonna say it ernest lubich it's so light it's so adroit and where so often the dialogue and the arguments that people have in earlier Bergman movies are cutting, and they, they really just take chunks off of other people. Here, it's a, it's a level of dance. The quips come so fast, and they're so clever, and they bounce off each other in such an interesting way that it's a feeling of effervescence pervades this film. Yeah, we've talked a bit about his skill as a visualist, but I don't think we've really mentioned him as a, a scriptwriter so far. That is evident here and will be evident in a film we're going to talk about in a few minutes as well. The ability to get performances out of actors on multiple genres is really amazing here. We see it throughout his work. But it is worth noting, too, that uh, Bergman will point back to a film that I wasn't so high on, Waiting Women, and saying that Eva Dahlbeck and Gunnar Bjornstrand basically taught him comedy from that point forward. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to acknowledge the collaborative uh, work he does with his cast and yes. his stable of actors. It does show the real value of the particular vibe and the presence someone can give to the, give to the screen. Gunner has played some kind of unsympathetic characters already to this point, but they've always been compelling. There's a way that he pops off the screen 
and he's taking a character who has a many unlikable qualities, but you don't actively dislike him. You kind of hope that things turn out well for and him. And that's the difference, and, and I don't want to completely dis Stig and Berger because they, they were in some good movies, but they didn't have that natural spark that Gunner has. And I, I, I think that's why when Bergman gets into his uh, glory period, he's going to take Gunner with him instead of the other two. Mm-hmm. And Dahlbeck matches him so well. Yeah. Just everything that he does upon being just sti- uh, just brittle and uh, frantic at his schemes, she just matches him at being this character that just so knowing about their relationship and and the different ways that she can she knows exactly the right thing to needle them and yet there's an underlying current of not infatuation or obsession but affection between them that to me just harkens back to like the ultimate couple of the hollywood era of uh, nick and nora charles from the thin man Hmm. these guys are great together Oh, yeah. No, Gunner has a real dashing quality here, but it really doesn't work unless they have the chemistry there. It's still so interesting to me that all of this grows from the, to me at least, failed comic sequence in Waiting Women, because Gunner and Eva as a couple will be around more in the future. Right. It's sort of a microcosm for this whole uh, exploration of his early movies, because there are all these kind of seeds that sprout from maybe missteps in the past, but pay off much later on. Right. Well, what what interests Bergman is still the same. His tragic dramas early on are still basically about these couples who do they really belong together? Their infidelities. Usually, it's mined for tragedy and melodrama but here those same themes are mined for comedy Mm -hmm. that's why it's so remarkable because the palm beach story does not have self-loathing in it (laughs) the um uh, the lady d is not about despair and yet this movie is about these things but it's funny it's so funny he gets the screwball thing and he perfectly raises the temperature on it because things start off kind of frantic they get more and more frantic and when they get to this banquet, it is just pure energetic delight on here. Like, to your point on Adam. Carl Adam. Car- Carl Adam. <laughs> he is such a great example of a monstrous, egomaniacal, art- artistic sort. And Eva Dahlbeck's character has had enough of him. And so she goes all out. She goes, like, full... Carol Lombard, like, I'm smashing dishes. I'm leaping on the table. I'm through with you. And he has to stew in his own juices. And then when he finally erupts, he causes eight times more destruction. It's the movie's moment of brilliance. I I defy anyone just not to laugh out loud as all this chaos is erupting. Exactly, exactly. And also, like, it shares a screwball, the the character's willingness to just open themselves up and to look silly in pursuit of the stuff that they go. And it it provides, to me, endless charms to see how far, including Gunner has a whole dance sequence at the (laughs) end, which is filmed in a kind of noirish way but it's just done he's so not an effective dancer that it's uh, that it's also really wonderful to encounter and just and almost gets to a buster key level where they're literally chasing each other on different sides of a canal in their final locations that was my favorite shot of the movie is it's a tracking shot from across a canal as the two of them reconcile it's a really neat way to do it Mm -hmm. Uh, especially because we've just been in a crowded bar interior that was shot very stylistically and outside you're back to a distant shot that 
acknowledges the real world environment, that whiplash of going out from the bar to that and then having them reconcile within it was neat. Mm -hmm. This is one of my favorite gems, and I am so grateful. I'll tell you right now, I am so grateful for the Directors Club to be able to. I would have never had a chance to go look at this or even conceive of the idea of seeing this movie if it wasn't for this project. Because somehow this movie is pretty unknown. It, it, it appeared, I think, for the first time on digital, the new giant Bergman box set, and I, I had never heard of this before. Part of it, too, is where it comes in his filmography, because it's kind of nestled in between two much more well-known films, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Sawdust and Tinsel, which we just talked about, and Smiles of a Summer Night, which we'll talk about shortly. So I think maybe those two overshadow it wrongly, I think, because it is worthy of discussion amongst them. Yeah, yeah. And so if I could go and uh, just let you guys listening in know, check out Ingmar Bergman's A Lesson in Love, and I would be happy to contribute putting in burst symbols on the DVD cover that says, Bergman, fun! Bergman, <laughs> an enjoyable romp! <laughs> and it's 100% true, and you'll find a lot to, to love in this movie. And our favorite uh, Bergman comedian's return, In Dreams, released in 1955. Go on and catch it if you can. It's the lot of truth. If it's the lot of model and her boss head out of town to a photo shoot, but both find romantic interests take priority. The agency owner seeks to rekindle sparks with a married ex-lover, while the model sets out on seducing a rich older man taken by her resemblance to his late wife. I guess we shouldn't have expected Ingmar Berman to have two comedies in the same year because... This is not exactly a laugh riot. We're back to more traditional Bergman concerns here. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Jason, the late Jason Molina and his his band Songs Ohio. The lyrics to one of their songs called Didn't It Rain contain the phrase, if they think you got it, they're going to beat it out of you. And And I think that this movie really exemplifies that. It's like you can have whatever dream you want, but it's going to fail. (laughs) You're not going to get it. Don't have any big ideas. And that's sort of what's going on here. It's back to, um, while not the level of sawdust and tinsel, it's sort of exploring that same humiliation, that same disappointment. That's interesting. I I don't think of it as as direct immolation or destruction of people's dreams. More along the lines of putting their wishes in a perspective of reality, and especially on Dahlbeck's character. 
there is a moment that may come across in another movie as melodramatic as she is having an affair with a married man and the married man's wife comes in and what could be a tawdry confrontation just ends up being her literally asking Dalbeck's character, well, think about this. Or you think he's going to do this? You think you're going to do that? And and she just comes to this real... It isn't that it's beaten out of her, you know? It's like that she's comes to this realization that maybe this was... She was feeding on some illusions that were in her own head. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the tone is so different from, say, Sawdust and Tinsel, which I, I agree, Peter, uh, actually has some thematics in common. But whereas the first movie is taking place at the turn of the century and everything is raw and dangerous, here it's kind of a uh, a more bourgeois take on the same thing everyone is going to be able to go back to their lives but they have these dreams they have this idea of what they want and they're not going to get it and it's very interesting how the two stories do mirror each other because we know very little about Eva Dahlbeck's lover and we just kind of see her stalking him basically and trying to insert herself back into their lives but we don't know the viability of what that relationship would have been like just that he is a married man so there is infidelity going on and that contrasts in an interesting way through uh, to Harriet Anderson's story as she's seducing an older man played by uh, Gunnar Bjornstrom, this time in old age makeup. And he is, of course, taken by her and is willing to give a lot of himself. He's a, he's a wealthy man. But just as Eva has to have the confrontation with her lover's wife, um, Harriet Anderson has to have the confrontation with uh, the old man's daughter, who also kind of sees through her bullshit. I don't disagree with what you're saying. I'll push back a little bit on the class thing, though, because I think this does mirror Sawdust and Tinsel's class themes a bit. It's just at a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. Because the film starts off with Eva Dahlbeck's character being watched over by this grotesque, obese man who is basically the financier. And he's sitting there tapping his fingers, saying, you need to do this, to basically controlling the art because he has the purse strings. So she's stuck there like with no real option other than to do professionally what he wants her to do, which leads her to go on this road trip and have her personal relationship um, kind of exploded in the way we were talking about. With regard to Harriet Anderson's story, there's a financial element to that too because Gun the Gunnar Bjornstrand character showers her with gifts. And it's basically sort of like almost a Cinderella thing where, mm -hmm. you know, she's becoming like a, a like being given all these things, but then it's illusory and they're taken away from her at the end. So to me, it is tying in the same way Sadist and Tinsel did the personal and the career into one ball and having them face disappointment on both fronts. It's not as extreme as Sawdust and Tinsel, and it's not as writ large, mm -hmm. but it does continue his themes uh, in that manner, to me at least. 
the title to be in reference to is dreams can be cruel too they can mm-hmm. taunt you and that's really what this film goes about doing is sort of slowly stripping that away from these folks that reminds me of uh, one of my favorite bruce springsteen lyrics uh, in a song called the river he says uh, is a dream a lie if it don't come true and maybe <laughs> that could be the tagline for this film put that on the poster if it were coming out today right. and the same year bergman makes smiles of a summer night in 1955. This tale of mismatched lovers takes place at the turn of the 20th century and centers around a middle-aged lawyer, Frederick, who has just taken a young bride, but is still not over his actress ex-lover. Meanwhile, Frederick's repressed son has feelings for his father's wife. A midsummer night in the country may sort out who belongs to who's who. So we're, we're back to comedy, but it's a very different kind of comedy than we had in A Lesson of Love, because this is from a far older tradition. It more resembles uh, the comedies of Moliere, or more specifically, Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, of which it shares the plot themes of mismatched lovers and some sort of possibly supernatural solution to make sure that everybody ends up with who they're supposed to end up with. And even though it might not have the belly laughs of the other movie, it's incredibly quick-witted and has some great dialogue and, and great chemistry and is just a film that is utterly charming. A man should not face his rival and deprived of his trousers. Perhaps my favorite line from the film. I am going to make a crazy analogy on here, but what do you take when you take Ingmar Bergman's kind of sensibilities or some of the outlooks on life that he's expressed and you deliver it to a period piece? I think you get a turn-of-the-century version of The Office. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> in the sense that there are so many scenes which I actually found really funny, like laugh out loud funny, about how things can get really awkward. For example, there's a moment where Gunner is still pining for certain things from his ex, but his ex-wife is staying at a military guy's house. And a military guy shows up. And uh, they just pose as like being friends, and but it's very clear that this military guy is not buying it. Mm -hmm. And then he just just calmly says, okay, you know you're not getting out of this with your trousers, right? (laughs) And uh, what, what? (laughs) Gunner is so so nicely, like, getting more and more aware of, like, oh, crap. (laughs) But in in this most light, in this most light um, uh, step kind of way. Because we're sort of back to the humiliation theme, this time very focused on, on being cuckold and what that means in this society. And what's funny is how pompous 
everyone really is and, mm-hmm. and sure of themselves. So when they do get into these confrontations, uh, especially like you mentioned, uh, the confrontations with the, the, the Count played by uh, Yari Cool. He has this uh, great line, uh, you could do what you want with my wife, but don't mess with my mistress. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the chemistry between those two as rivals Mm -hmm. is so good. Like, I particularly like a small moment in the scene you were talking about, Al, where Yari's character realizes he's he's slightly shorter than Gunner, not much, but like he'll get on his toes just a little bit so he can look in his eye and be just the same height. Yeah. And it's just this this small little thing of puncturing the pomposity mm-hmm. of this guy that really is not to me in a microcosm is what this film is about. There's not a ton of like belly laughs per se, but the observations are so acute and just so well structured and so barbed that I really enjoyed this movie from start to finish. That sense of awkwardness and humiliation is also just really brought to bear in Gunner's ne'er-do-well son. He's just a perfect combination of an incredibly harried, frenzied performance by a guy who is so, so repressed. And so he expresses it in spouting all sorts of philosophical nonsense. And it's so unfortunate for him that he has as his servant Harriet Anderson, who this time is absolutely aware of the effect that she has on him (laughs) and plays him like a fiddle. My favorite sequence early in the film is when you first meet the Sun character. And, and I believe I, I'm reading this as Bergman writing parts of his personality he doesn't like. And then this character is like this kind of pompous artist who's, or, or he's studying to be a priest, but he's very um, just wimpy, basically. Yeah. And the first time you see him, he's like caressing this guitar, like holding it over him. Like, like he's so frightened of the world yes. that like this guitar is going to protect him or something. Basically, you expect John Belushi to come in and smash the guitar. Yeah. Yeah, at, at any yeah, moment. Exactly. But exactly. The, the son's character, even though it's for laughs here, seems to have a lot in common with basically every uh, religious character in Bergman who reminds him of his religious father and uh, tends to be portrayed very negatively and like someone completely full of it. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do like, though, um, this movie acknowledges the existence of sex. It is pretty body in a lot oh, of places. Well, Berkman's never shy about that. Yeah, exactly. But my, one of my favorite things that the, the son character, at one point he has a failed liaison with Petra, the uh, yes. Harriet Anderson character. And she's just sort of like whatever blase about it. And he goes right back to his books and starts studying like the most. <laughs> she's like, no, I have to teach you about this. Like he, he, he's going to teach her like the ways of the world and the rules of the Bible just solely because he's failed to perform right. sexually. Yes. And it's just such a hilarious scene where she's just like whatever (laughs) oh my god and like this is well this is the movie more than any bergman that we saw for this podcast where i was aware that i did not get what the subtitles were the subtitles are effective in describing what the dialogue is Mm -hmm. and in general terms for general stories and plots it's fine but it's very clear when these guys are having their interactions that they're using the absolute height of the language to express risque things in the most oblique of ways. Right. Like there's this one moment where they say about the son character, uh, <laughs> yeah, he ended up finishing way too early. You're like, <laughs> whoa, wait a minute. That's something going on that's not about finishing his books early. Let's put it that way. And I could tell that it was phrased in the original Swedish. It's in a much more robust way than the, that something had to directly address is what I'm getting at. Sure. 
And we should talk about uh, Gunner's relationship with his young bride, which is also one that is fraught with humiliation because he marries this girl when she's 16. But I think it's two years later now, and they still haven't slept together. And so the temptation is there, but nothing is happening. And it's in that context that he seeks out Eva Dahlbeck's character, who knows Gunner so well that she could just read how miserable he is in this uh, quasi-marriage. Mm-hmm. Both in Harriet Anderson's case and Dahlbeck's case, these are people who look at the, guy, the guys in their life and they just absolutely have them pegged and know exactly which way to yank, yank them back and forth. But there's a great contrast on the um, military figure who is knows the proper thing to do is to is to have a mistress and to play and to play the field and he ha- and he and he's he's so pompous on that and his wife is so strict by comparison so she sort of has the losing hand of that part of the relationship mm-hmm. so those dynamics are really interesting and then when they all get to this manner. All these different personalities start mixing together and start bouncing around each other to sometimes some really great comic effect. And uh, the manor is headed by a uh, an old woman who decides to have all her guests for dinner and uh, offers them some wine. Yeah, it gets them drunk. But it's it's implied that there may be even more magical properties to uh, to the wine that uh, lets people's guards down and lets their really fe- real feelings come out. Well, I mean, she's that's one mo- part of the movie where I'm like, whoa, hold on, because she started describing what animals were used to make this wine, and like, oh, yeah. good, I I, excluded, I would put the wine aside at that point, right? But that that's really the plots. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream mm-hmm. uh, analogy is how the wine basically takes the place of the fairies in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. For me, like the one thing that does not get me to put this movie up on a level of some of the higher movies that we've even talked about here on this podcast is that I think the premise, setting up these characters, making sure the characters are different and they have these particular relationships, and putting them in this cauldron... All that is really great, but I think what happens when they get there just takes just a step down because mm. it doesn't quite follow through. Like, for example, Dahlbeck, who is this master manipulator, a very knowledgeable person, and by the way, it's her mother who owns this manor, mm-hmm. and she is. it's funny to see how she's nine times more cynical about love than, than even the, the cynical Dahlbeck already is. I, I, I love the scene where they share where Eva tells her, you should write a memoir, and she says something to the effect of, I only have this house because I agreed not to. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. I, get, I, I got this house for people paying me to not be in my memoirs. <laughs> exactly. And so there's a moment in the movie where I was like, I was super excited because she meets up with the repressed wife of the Count and says, I've got a plan where we can both help each other because we know how, how this guy behaves. And where I, where I felt, oh, it's on. She's got a plan. Let's see how this plan comes out. And I was expecting the romantic version of a caper movie where these wheels within wheels. Mm-hmm. And nothing really comes of it. Hmm. It's sort of just she meets up with somebody and then someone's jealous and that's it. 
and that sort of diffuses. I'm with you, Peter, in that the encounters between the Count and Gunner's character are always tremendously enjoyable, even in the case, which might be the first example of Russian roulette shown on film, done for laughs. Right? Yeah, well, lest, lest we think uh, Igmar's gone soft on, on us, his idea of a romantic comedy involves a failed hanging suicide attempt and <laughs> Russian roulette. So, yes, so. yes. And, 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 and yes, this roulette thing is funny because these guys are pompous. They have these ways that, oh, how should I behave? And so <laughs> the way Gunners holds the gun, <laughs> just, okay, I know what I have to do. I'm just going to try this very slowly. It's so enjoyable on how the manners are still interfering with this life and death situation. The, the, the expression on his face after he pulls the trigger the first time and it doesn't go off. Like he, yes. just, he just has like the expression of pure joy for like two seconds yeah. and then he puts the gun down. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh, marvelous on that scene level. But then what happens there does not really justify him, the pairing that Gunner gets. It doesn't really follow from it, nor does the Count's change of heart happen See, well, I, I mean i think the idea is he's truly in love uh with with eva's character and so the truth that comes out is that everyone's going to end up with who they should end up with and it turns out the count needs to end up with his own wife and uh well, you know, it, and, and, and the son ends up with uh with gunner's young bride the pairing of the son and the young wife is mm -hmm. that. See, that's one where it does work because they're both innocent in their own way. In fact, right. as much as Monica is very much a non-innocent, let's put it that way, the young bride of Gunner is so much of an innocent. And there's, I think, a really hilarious scene where she's talking about, "Oh, I'm gonna be, pr I'm gonna be sexy for my man." And Harriet Anderson, who I think, even though it's a period piece, she might still be chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> she's clearly someone who's been around the block, and so. Her listening to this real naive girls talking about how I'll be sexy like this, I'll be sexy like that. It's like, uh huh, honey, uh huh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and one interesting thing about that too is from the Gunner character's perspective, everyone who talks to him is like, "Where's your young bride?" They don't call her by her name. Right, <laughs> They're right. just like, yeah. "Hey, where's young bride?" <laughs> so, so it's like they almost acknowledge yeah. that it's not real in any sort of way and mm -hmm. there's there's uh throughout all this there's even a class element that comes through again at the end when harriet anderson's uh maid character meets up with i guess uh, a farmhand uh played by uh, aki grunberg mm -hmm. and the, because they're both of the servant class they have none of the inhibitions. They have none of the airs that the uh, the upper class uh, folks in the big house have. And so their frolicking kind of creates a really cool contrast to all the manipulations of the other couples, made even cooler by the setting of this summer night which isn't night at all because this is the the time of year when you don't have night in this area of sweden so they talk about the three smiles so there's some 
really evocative visual moments too in this. In the three smiles, we should talk about our um, one for the young lovers mm-hmm. who are the the son and the young young bride mm-hmm. who who take off. They hit the road. Um, the jesters are fools who are the Harriet Anderson and Aki character mm-hmm. you mentioned, and then the last one are the sad and lonely. Um, which are basically the other two couples, like the the older couples, more or less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am really conflicted on the on Ake because it pulls me in three ways. When I see the movie and his character, unfortunately, I for me he was introduced too late, mm. and so part of the thing that I really that just just really hits me in a really bad spot of my is characters who show up at the end of the movie who explain the theme of the movie, <laughs> and he is very much that, which. Does not help because he's a, a massive drunken oaf, so he may be the least qualified to go and comment upon this is what life is really about. <laughs> or the most qualified. Well, because we've already seen how sophisticated oh, uh, uh, upper class folks oh, don't oh, know what they're talking he, about. He's, he's our drunken poet. Come on. Yeah. Right, right, right. No, no, I, no, I agree on that, and that's cool, but I don't think it transfers that because mm-hmm. the upper class are idiots does not, by definition, mean that the lower class cannot also be idiots in their own way. And especially the way he portrays is this well, there's a Falstaffian thing, yes. mm-hmm. sort of lust for life. But I particularly act badly to the fact that he's explicitly saying these things mm-hmm. as opposed to simply living his life and showing a better example that way the which that i brad i completely agree with you in that the way those guys interact with each other is a great comparison of how ridiculous ostentatious rituals of the upper classes lead to less success in their romantic pairings to say the least and probably one of the most epic roles in the hay in film history, too, by the way. A, a literal role in the hay, exactly. not a metaphorical. Roll rolling, 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 rolling. <laughs> and it also is a great character arc for Harriet Anderson, because she's someone who does have that perspective of, oh, I know, I know all about how these rituals go or how these things go. And then he gives her this wonderful romantic moment, so he opens up like a... A whole avenue of possibility in her mm-hmm. life, and and she, her realization on that, like, yeah, there's a reason why she's going to grapple him with her thighs and not force him to marry. <laughs> that development works out nicely, but just don't do the bagger vans crap, man. Just don't don't say, see, this is what it's about. But apart from that, I really like this film on that comedy thing, and most off of like how even in the Ake's part. Oh, I have to note that he's the guy from Stardust and Tinsel. Yeah. He's the guy from A Lesson in Love, and it is totally different. One heck of a fine for Bergman to have a guy to do all these three different tones in three different movies. Hmm. That's really great. But also in this movie, Bergman is absolutely a master of the tone. He has the sense of humiliation, the sense of comedic stuff, the sense of the absurdity of people's rituals, and the way all these class divisions provide moments of awkwardness and, uh, and silliness. And... It harkens back to me the films of Max Ophels, who like seems like a lot of his most famous films are about like the absurdities that people have and the rituals that they that they do in the upper classes. Most notably, like the earrings of Madame Day and La Placier. It's also one of Bergman's most consistently pleasant. It's just enjoyable, not even not in a manic mm-hmm. way like A Lesson in Love, but he's really in full control of presenting it this way. I think. And, and this time it paid off commercially and artistically because this was a huge success and an international success 
so enmeshed in the culture that it led to an acclaimed musical of its own, uh, Stephen Sondheim's A Little Night Music. And maybe less acclaimed, it also inspired a early 80s Woody Allen movie called A Midsummer Night Sex Comedy. With Smiles of a Summer Night, that Bergman becomes center stage as one of the great international directors. As we're going to find out in part two of this podcast, he is not going to waste this moment. Right. There's going to be some movies coming up on part two that have become legends, and we'll go take a look at that in part two. But... In the meantime, Peter, thanks so much for joining us on this, and hopefully you're up for hearing about Seven Seal and other films. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, we'll uh, make our way out of the darkness for now, but uh, dive back in later. <laughs> yes, and thanks to you guys listening in to here on Exploration on Early Bergman. I have to say personally, I'm super enthused about looking at these things. There's so many interesting facets on these films, and you get so many of the parts that eventually would get forged into Bergman's legendary work that it is a, was a really rich exploration. We hope you guys enjoyed this too. And if, if you have thoughts on, on these particular films or what we had to say about them, you can give the Directors Club an email about it at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club is found all over the internet from Facebook at Directors Club Podcast, um, Spotify at Directors Club Podcast, iTunes at Directors Club Podcast, YouTube under Directors Club Podcast, under Twitter at DC Podcast, and our episodes can be found online at our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and hope to catch you on another episode of Directors Club. Seven seal you guys later. But one final note I would say is that this was the first of the Bergman films that we saw that I got my gut busted laughing. And as you can tell when we talked about this, not a laugh riot of a film, <laughs> but at the end when you have a, of this film that has um, about all these broken, damaged relationships and attempt to look at these in, in a fair, if melodramatic way, we then uh, get the final credit image that says, Slut. S-L-U-T, which is the Swedish word for the end or, far, or final. But it got me. <laughs> it got me because the very concept of a man known for putting in so much empathy and complexity for female characters and putting up a movie that was doing just that 
to literally have like his final word to be like almost muttered under his breath. Yeah, but she's really a dirty whore. <laughs> the perfect example of a of a title nearly negating the entire intent of a movie. <laughs> Off my legs.